The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. What makes a Carnival Cruise fun? That's up to you. Maybe it's a ride on boat, a roller coaster at sea, or a deep tissue massage at the spa, Creole-inspired cuisine at Emerald's Bistro to laid-back bites at Guy's Burger Joint, excursions that take you from jungle adventures to beach days at Mahogany Bay, and sunsets from the top deck. Long story short, no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival, choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. The Titanic. I'm guessing you've heard of it a massive passenger cruise liner that sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, almost, in mid-April of 1912. The Titanic sank in the early hours of April 15th, 1912. The luxury cruise liner that some thought of as being unsinkable turned out to be very, very sinkable. After smashed into an iceberg on its starboard side, it took less than three hours for the Titanic to become completely submerged, eventually coming to rest at a depth of roughly 12,500 feet underwater. Just a few hours before, his passengers had been enjoying music, dancing, state-of-the-art amenities, and wonderful food and drink aboard the most technologically advanced ship of their time. And now, its confused and traumatized passengers, those who still lived, sat in one of just 24 lifeboats, nowhere near enough to have saved all those who were aboard the ship, and roughly 1,500 people would perish. After disappearing into the cold, dark waters of the Atlantic that fateful April night, and then the Titanic would remain undisturbed on the ocean floor for over seven decades. No one could find it. Not that they didn't try. People had all kinds of ideas about how to raise the ship back up to the surface once they did find it. And most of the ideas were terrible, like filling it up with ping pong balls and just floating it up. So much interesting information to cover today. We'll look at how the Titanic was designed and built, meet some of the people who traveled on it, some of the brave crew that manned the ship in its final moments, and we'll go minute by minute through the tragedy in today's Time Suck timeline. Then we'll step out of the timeline to look into some wild conspiracy theories that people have cooked up over the years to explain the Titanic sinking, uh, even though hitting an iceberg already gives it, uh, you know, a perfectly reasonable sinking explanation. Or does it? Did J.P. Morgan use the Titanic to kill off some millionaire rivals? So much interesting information to dissect today. So put on your first-class dancing shoes, light up a cigar, and listen to the big band play as we dive into the seafaring, ahoy matey, conspiracy-laden edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, Meat Sacks. Hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. 
Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, shrub, shrub slut lover, sock master, uncle talk, and frequent legal client of the law office of Chase, Kemper, and Kroll. And you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, hope you're having a nice start to your week or nice end to your week or enjoying a nice midweek. I can't possibly know when you're listening. Sorry, should have never yelled at you. You, you didn't deserve that. Hey, uh, do you like fanny packs? I had one as a kid. My son Kyler loves fanny packs and I may have to wear one again because now we have a Time Suck fanny pack in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Put a pack on your fanny or slightly above your hip or on top of your muffin or on top of your tiddlywinks. What are tiddlywinks? I don't know. Why don't you tell me? Why don't you tell me what you're hiding? Donating to a new charity this week. I'll, I'll know the amount next week. Recorded this one a bit in advance before departing for Yellowstone. Excited to get outside in a, a different scenic area for a few days with the fam. Hopefully none of us are eaten by geyser bears. Some new kind of bear that crawl up out of geysers. Don't bother Googling it. It's pretty new and maybe is made up. Uh, but anyway, I know uh, we've had a variety of natural disasters affecting various parts of America recently. We can't help them all, but we can donate roughly $7,000 this month to SBP, originally named St. Bernard Project, founded in 2006 by a couple in St. Bernard Parish, just outside New Orleans, frustrated by the slow response after Hurricane Katrina. Its model is focused on streamlining the recovery process from natural disasters, specifically mainly hurricanes, which includes uh, quickly rebuilding homes, restoring local businesses, supporting policies that aid long-term recovery. Uh, they don't just help in Louisiana. They help in portions of you know Texas uh, and other parts of the Gulf Coast as well. And they're helping right now in the, in the wake of Hurricane Laura. God bless the good people of the SBP. I know I don't often say that, but it felt right today. And I look forward to sending money their way uh, this coming week. When the, when the podcast drops, thanks to all of the Patreon supporters for being a part of this donation. And you can go to sbpusa.org to donate, volunteer, or to find out more. And now let's get to a topic uh, that actually is related to our charity of the month quite a bit. Thinking of the Titanic didn't have shit to do with the Gulf Coast, uh, but it had everything to do with Mother Nature motherfucking some fellow human beings. Before we get into today's timeline, that will focus first on the sinking of the big ship and then later on efforts to both find its wreckage and salvage it, let's find out just exactly how impressive a ship the Titanic was. Learn a little bit about how the transatlantic passenger ship industry worked. Take a look at the Titanic's luxurious amenities, what it cost to buy a ticket back in 1912 and meet some of its famous passengers and crew. Uh, then after the timeline, we'll have some fun with some pretty wild theories about what really happened with the Titanic. Damn you, Illuminati! Uh, in the early 1900s, the transatlantic passenger trade was highly profitable and competitive. People from all over Europe were pouring into America to both vacation and perhaps more often immigrate to the States to start new lives. Multiple ship lines vied to transport wealthy travelers and immigrants. There were German, French, Italian liners, and more. Britain had the biggest fleets by far. It's almost like the UK has some kind of history several hundred years deep of being really, really good at traveling around the world in boats or something. Uh, the two biggest British lines were the White Star Line and the Cunard Line. In the summer of 1907, the Cunard Line, founded in Liverpool in 1840 by Samuel Cunard, a British-Canadian shipping magnet born in Halifax, uh, stepped up its you know, game with the de debut of two new ships, the Lusitania and the Mauritania, which were scheduled to enter into service later that year. These two ships garnered a lot of media attention for their elegance and expected speed, and they were fast. Both would later set speed records crossing the Atlantic Ocean. The Mortania could take 2,300 people across the Atlantic in just four and a half days. 30 years later, the Queen Mary, whose rumored hauntings are covered on my scared to death 
Paranormal podcast later this week. Cross promo. Uh, we cut that travel time down to just four days. And how long had it taken to cross the Atlantic prior to these new steamships? Way too long for a guy like me who gets violently ill at sea when their water gets even a little bit choppy, no matter how much anti-motion sickness medication I take. I took the Mayflower 66 days to sail across the Atlantic in 1620. Fuck that. I would have probably died by the 10th day, possibly due to other passengers throwing me overboard because I couldn't handle the volume of vomit I was constantly tossing about the ship. Nine and a half week journey? Nope. Guess I will stay in Europe and struggle. Uh, in the 1700s, swifter sail ships shortened the trip to six weeks. I'm still dead. That's still a month and a half. Uh, after the advent of steamships steamships in 1807, the travel time would be cut down to 14 days by 1845. Two weeks. Still no thank you. By 1952, it would be cut down to three, three and a half days, as I said earlier. Uh, I'm alive but not happy. But by 1952, passenger ship speed didn't really matter that much. Commercial air travel had already put some nails into the coffin of transatlantic uh, ship travel. People today still go on cruises, of course, but not as a way to get somewhere as quickly as possible. In 1939, Pan American inaugurated the first transatlantic passenger flight between New York and Marseille, France. Took 22 hours, 39 minutes, cost $375. Not as cheap as the Queen Mary's third class ticket fare of $93, but a lot cheaper than Queen Mary's $663 first class ticket. And soon commercial flight prices uh, flight prices would, would drop and it would be both cheaper and faster than taking a boat. And then bye-bye massive transatlantic passenger liners. Now, by the way, you can fly from New York City to Paris, France in under seven and a half hours. What a world we live in. But back in 1907, steamships were still king. They didn't know they only had a few decades left to enjoy their heyday. Back in 1907, there was still a lot of money to be made in ferrying passengers back and forth across the Atlantic. And as, as I said, Cunard had just launched two new spectacular ships. Without something to equal or surpass them, the White Star Line would quickly fall behind. The White Star Line was actually named the Oceanic Steam Navigation Company. But since that name sucks, they became more commonly known as the White Star Line. I want to point that out before Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com is flooded with emails from the many, many transatlantic passenger line historians who undoubtedly listen to this show. Put your captain's hats back on. Take your fingers off the keyboard. Uh, the White Star Line had been founded five years after Cunard in 1845, also in Liverpool. Uh, the White Star chairman in 1907, J. Bruce Ismay, reportedly met with William Peary, who ran the Belfast shipbuilding firm Harland & Wolf. Harland & Wolf had constructed most of the White Star's vessels, and Ismay wanted Peary to step shit up. So he put a knife to the man's throat, and he demanded a bigger, faster ship, or he would, quote, Turn Perry's wife and children into a fucking stew before slitting his throat and then stuffing the man's family into the hole he had just made. At least that is what someone told me he did, but that person didn't seem very stable. Actual legitimate sources say the two men got along just fine and knew that if they put their heads together, they could come up with something more luxurious than Cunard's two new ships. They devised a plan to build a class of large liners that would be known primarily for their comfort instead of their speed. They figured that passengers would be okay taking a bit longer to cross the sea if they could do it in style. It was eventually decided that three vessels would be constructed, the Olympic, the Titanic, and then later the Britannic. The Britannic was also doomed. It would be completed in 1915, built to be even safer than the Titanic, and then hit by a German mine, or I guess it hit a German mine, and sank into the Aegean Sea in 1916. The largest liner sunk in all of World War I. Still the largest passenger ship on the ocean floor. And by the way, liner means a large ship built to carry passengers, usually in luxurious and comfortable surroundings on long trips. They're, diff uh, they're different from ships used for the transport of raw materials or military ships. 
uh, just for civilian transportation. A lot of maritime vocabulary in this episode meets X. I'll try and define these seafaring vocab terms as they come. On March 31st, 1909, some three months after work began on the Olympic, the keel was laid for the Titanic. And a keel is defined as the bottommost longitudinal structural element on a vessel. So essentially, uh, the bottom. Think of it as a ship's spine. It has some other uses on a sailboat, but on a steamer, uh, just think bottom. The Titanic and the Olympic were built side by side in a specially constructed gantry, a giant metal thing, looks like a bridge of sorts, used to both build ships beneath it and used now to load giant cargo containers onto ships. The gantry was enormous, so it could accommodate the ship's unprecedented sizes. Uh, the sister ships were largely designed by Thomas Andrews of Harland and & Wolfe, and they each cost 1.5 million pounds, equivalent to $7.5 million in 1912. That's equivalent to roughly $200 million today, but inflation calculator estimates sometimes can be off and sometimes just don't work for certain products or projects. According to a 2019 Investopedia article, it would actually cost over $400 million to build this ship today. Uh, now big luxury liners, even more expensive, quite a bit more actually. The last couple of uh, the Royal Caribbean's Oasis-class ships, their biggest liners, completed in 2010 and 2016, cost roughly $1.6 billion to build each. These new ships, quite a bit bigger than the Titanic was. Uh, the Royal Caribbean's Harmony of the Seas, almost 1,200 feet long. The Titanic was just a few inches short of being 883 feet long. Almost three standard football fields also weighed roughly 50,000 tons and was the biggest passenger ship in the world when it debuted in 1912. Uh, the bridge deck extended 550 feet. Passenger accommodation and public areas were located on the promenade, bridge, shelter, saloon, upper, middle, and lower decks. The other three were reserved for the crew, cargo, and machinery. The boat and the promenade decks were above the superstructure of the ship. If you really want to get a feel for how this, uh, how all this looked, and I, and I do recommend this, check out Britannica.com's Diagram of the Titanic. Link in the episode notes available on the TimeSuck app. Do a word search for diagram to find the link in the notes. It, it's super cool, just to put it all in perspective. The Titanic and its sister ship, the Olympic, could each carry 3,295 people, 2,435 passengers, plus a crew of 860. The Olympic, by the way, just slightly smaller than the Titanic and would debut a bit earlier. Uh, launching in 1911 and running all the way until 1935 when it was sold for scrap metal. Uh, the only ship of the trio to never sink. Unless you're a conspiracy theorist, then it did sink, but the Titanic never did. More on that later. If you're not a conspiracy theorist, you understand that it was completely demolished by 1937. Uh, the largest current ship in the world is the Royal Caribbean's Symphony of the Sea. It debuted in 2018, has 22 restaurants, 42 bars, an ice rink, a zip line, and more. It can hold up to 6,680 passengers and a 2,200-person crew. Little over twice as many total person capacity as the Titanic. So enormous. How much bigger are these ships going to get? When are they going to have little freeways on them where you can drive like golf carts or ATVs or something? And then you can be on a ship in the middle of the ocean and still complain about traffic. While the Titanic was only slightly bigger than the Olympic, it had far more amenities than its sister ship. The Titanic featured amenities that we now take for granted on cruises, but had never for, uh, never been before seen on a passenger ship. Among them were swimming pools, Turkish baths, squash courts, a gym, first-class public rooms, included a uh, dining saloon, reception room, restaurant, lounge, reading and writing room, smoking room, veranda cafes, and palm courts. The goal of the Titanic was to blow passengers away with size and luxury. The designers were so interested in making the ship look spectacular, it even had a giant fake smokestack. Mm -hmm. One of its huge smokestacks was just a prop. 
Only three of the four smokestacks were functional. The extra one was built just to make the ship look more impressive, which is so funny to me. Like, did that fourth stack really help move tickets? Did it really make any difference at all? I'll admit, in old photos, the fourth stack does look pretty cool. But if it only had three, I seriously doubt I'd think like, eh, eh, whatever. I don't know what the big deal was with this fucking rinky-dink three-stack ship. And I highly doubt anyone would have not bought a ticket. Rubbish and poppycock. I thought the ship was supposed to be some kind of next-level liner. But look, my dear, only three stacks. <laughs> I'm no simp. You will not pull over the, the wool over these peepers, jeepers, creepers. Uh, I wonder if that was the owner's call and the designers just had to go with it. You know, like they're annoyed. It's like, what? A fake stack? That's so fucking stupid. I know, but Ismay wants it. And he's signing the checks. He said, and I quote, put the fourth stack on the Titanic. Then watch me shove it right up Cunard's ass. Now let's talk about what kind of tickets you could buy for the Titanic. Passengers were separated by class immediately upon arrival into first, second, third, fourth class. Uh, there were 689 passengers in first class, 674 in second, uh, 1,026 riffraff, I mean third class passengers, and 502 unlucky fourth class passengers. First up, the first class passengers, who obviously had the most luxurious experience. Uh, interesting to me, this class opened to travelers back in 1912 of every race. The Jim Crow segregation that existed in America at the time did not exist in Britain and France in the same way at the same time. Not saying there wasn't racism, but wasn't legalized and enforced like it was in America. Uh, the first class dining room was 114 feet long, spanned the full width of the ship, seated 532 passengers at once, the largest dining room ever seen on a ship. Not sure how that compares uh, to today's cruise liner dining rooms. Had a hard time finding square footage for those rooms specifically. Uh, the Symphony of the Seas, with 23 different dining venues, able to seat 5,200 passengers at once. And they have a culinary staff of over 1,000. And I'll stop doing that compare and contrast now. I don't want this to come across like some kind of cruise line infomercial. I just want to establish some comparative context for, for those of you who have been on cruises, which is many people. Uh, the Titanic had 15,000 bottles of ale on board, as well as 12,000 bottles of wine for a journey that was supposed to take 137 hours to cross the Atlantic. Five days, 17 hours. The ship was also stocked with 850 bottles of liquor and 8,000 cigars, back when people smoked way more cigars. Uh, some champagne would actually be recovered when the shipwreck was discovered in 1985. No published report has stated how many good bottles were recovered, but in 2004, six bottles of this batch were rumored to have been sold to a rich Asian collector. Similar champagne from the wreckage of a Swedish ship uh, that sunk in 1907 have been salvaged and sold for roughly $200,000 a bottle. And apparently that champagne was not only still drinkable, but it was quite tasty and full of fizz. Still full of fizz after all those years. Uh, also, musicians would perform in the first class dining room. Only the first and second class got to hear a full band play live music. And the first class band was bigger and better. And the first class band was expected to know 352 songs. These songs all listed in a songbook given out to first-class passengers so they could make requests. And they had some bangers. It's so big. Yeah, that's just the tip. DJ Iceberg. Iceberg. Welcome to Titanic FM. I'm DJ Iceberg, and we're singing today's best new sounds and classic hits. Get ready for this hot track. From 1899, it's Howard Whitney's The Mosquitoes Parade. Mosquito Parade. <laughs> 
Down the lane by the river glade, the Skeetles are on parade. They have sharpened all their stings and put some silver on their wings. Through their medals, they're on their way. They're not on a holiday. It's no wonder we're afraid. Mosquitoes on parade. What a hot track. I wonder if kids on board were annoyed by their parents requesting that one. Just, Father, why? Why do you always request that old song? Why can't we listen to some new stuff like Irvin Berlin's Alexander's Ragtime Band? Then his dad slaps him in the face. I will not tolerate such filth. Where do you hear such vulgarity? Irvin Berlin is a flash in the pan. His music will never last. He's not capable of capturing humanity's timeless struggle with mortality embodied by the mosquitoes parade. That, my boy, is music. And I do know that now you really want me uh, to sing a bit of that Irving Berlin's Alexander Ragtime Band after, uh, you know, demonstrated my vocal chops on that last little bit. So, so <laughs> here's a little something I, uh, here's a little something I cooked up. Come on and hear, come on and hear Alexander's Ragtime Band. Come on and hear, come on and hear. It's the best band in the land. They can play a bugle call like you never heard before. So natural that you want to go to war. That's just the best. Best. Come on, God damn it, sing with me. Oh, honey lamb. Sorry about the other guy. It's hard to find somebody to really do some duets with. Anyway. It's so big. Yeah, that's just the tip. DJ Iceberg. You just heard Dan Cummins and who gives a shit singing Irving Berlin's 1911 classic Alexander's Ragtime Band. The best new sound on Titanic FM. So, you know, there's that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's the, kind of shit, <laughs> that's the kind of shit people were singing and hearing on the Titanic's one and only voyage. Hot bangers, just like those. Except, of course, not sung as well because back then no one was able to access the elite musical training that I have which is why I can sing in 17 different, different octaves and in 35 different keys and in four languages. Anyway, back to amenities. Uh, the decor of the Titanic's dining room was top-notch. I just think about somebody new listening to the show right now and be like, what the fuck is this? Why did my friend recommend this show? Uh, <laughs> the Titanic's dining room was, uh, you know, they went, a lot of painstaking research went into making sure it was the, the top quality. The designs were based on Hatton Hall and some other manors in Hatfield, England. Prime examples of the English Jacobian style which made use of symmetry, classical silhouettes in the color white. Uh, the chairs and tables in the dining room were made of oak, not stained oak, mm-mm, actual hardwood chairs. Moving through other rooms, you might have felt like you were taking a tour of the best of European architecture. Each were decorated in different periodic styles, including Louis XVI, Louis XV, Georgian, and Queen Anne. I have no idea what any of those look like. Uh, there were also exotic elements to the Titanic's first-class amenities. The Turkish baths were decorated to look like they were in some, in some Arabian palace. The portholes were covered with carved Cairo curtains so that when light shone through, brilliant patterns would cover the walls and floors. The first-class grand staircase was a Titanic's crowning glory, later made famous in James Cameron uh, blockbuster Titanic film. There were actually two grand staircases constructed on the Titanic, but the front staircase became the iconic symbol of the Titanic, the place where first-class passengers would descend to enjoy their evening of luxury and leisure. The staircase descended five decks from the first class entrance to the lower accommodation decks, lounges, and dining room. It was constructed of polished oak, featured gilded balustrades, and wrought iron railings. The 60-foot-high, 16-feet-wide staircase featured a mix of architectural influences, oak paneling coming from English, the English William & Mary style, ironwork taken from French Louis XIV. The entire staircase was lit by a huge glass dome overhead, which allowed natural light to flood in. 
and at the foot of the grand staircase stood a statue of a cherub, which was later rescued from the wreck and now resides in a private collection. Uh, and found this interesting. Uh, they had 10 highly trained German shepherds protecting the staircase from any lower class ticket holders. The dogs could sniff out the smell of calluses, motor oil, cheap vodka, financial despair. They knew that none of those smells could possibly come from a first class passenger. So when they caught a whiff of like sausage gravy or clothes that didn't need to be dry cleaned or fake fur, uh, they would fucking attack. And if need be, they would kill uh, JK. Uh, of course, JK. Uh, First-class men remained in the dining room after the women left to smoke cigars and drink brandy uh, while women retired to the reading and writing room. That room was painted in white and furnished very elegantly. There was a huge bow uh, or a huge bow window, excuse me, that let women look out over the enclosed promenade deck and a large ornate fireplace provided warmth. The ship even had a newspaper. Had the, <laughs> the Atlantic Daily Bulletin was printed and posted every night in the first-class smoking room. When I first read this, I immediately pictured its final headline. Just a giant picture of an iceberg in a single word below. It just, fuck. Uh, along with the swimming pool and Turkish baths, first-class passengers also used Titanic's state-of-the-art gymnasium located on the boat deck. It included the usual dumbbells, rowing machines, as well as a mechanical horse and a mechanical camel. Not kidding. That was considered a good form of exercise in 1912, riding a mechanical camel. Got to keep those hip abductors tight. Engage that core. Don't fall off that fake boat camel. I picture a 1912 personal trainer cheering on some client. Come on, you got this. Five more minutes. Keep sitting there. Come on. Keep sitting there. Don't get tired. Don't fall out of that saddle on me, Charles Edward. You got this. You show that fake camel you know how to ride like the wind. Uh, the cost to use the gymnasium was one shilling, about 25 cents, to be paid to Thomas McCauley, the on-site gymnasium steward, who dressed in white flannels. That's a fancy-ass title for a fitness room attendant. I'd like to introduce you to Thomas McCauley, our gymnasium steward. Uh, the Titanic provided 39 first-class private suites, 30 on the bridge deck, 9 on the shelter deck. The suites included bedrooms and private toilet facilities. All had up to five different rooms, two bedrooms, two wardrobe rooms, a bathroom. There were also 350 cheaper standard cabins with single beds in first class. Uh, the first-class tickets ranged enormously in price from $150 for a simple berth to up to $4,350 for one of those two parlor suites. Uh, online inflation calculators say that's equivalent to roughly $116,000 today for a trip that was to last less than a week. You had to have some serious disposable income. If you were like 116 grand for a trip across the Atlantic, all right, I'll take two. Uh, now let's talk about second-class accommodations. Uh, second-class accommodations were spread over seven decks and were accessible by the second-class grand staircase or by the elevator. Get away from that first-class staircase, you second-class swine. Don't make us release the hounds upon you. Uh, the oak-paneled second-class dining room could seat 2,394 people at one time. The furniture was mahogany, crimson, upholstery. Second-class passengers slept in what were called berth rooms, B-E-R-T-H. The rooms were fitted in enamel white with mahogany furniture. Still sounds, you know, pretty, pretty sweet, pretty high-class. Second-class tickets were 60 bucks, around $1,600 today. Uh, for first- and second-class pas passengers, the Titanic and the Olympics set brand-new standards for accommodation. The second-class experience on the Titanic would have been comparable to the first-class experience on almost any other passenger liner. There were three separate outdoor promenade areas for second-class passengers. There was a second-class library and smoking room and a saloon about half the size of the first-class saloon. Unlike in first-class, where each passenger's rooms had their own toilets, second-class bathrooms were communal. With, with each bathroom shared by a few passengers. For an easy way to compare the first and second class, check out the dinner menus. 
The April 14th, 1912 first class dinner menu uh, was oysters for hors d'oeuvres. The second course was cream of barley soup. The third course was poached salmon with mousseline sauce and cucumbers. Uh, the fourth course uh, was filet mignon, uh, lyonnaise, sauteed chicken, and vegetable marrow posse. I don't even know what that shit is. Uh, the fifth course was lamb with mint sauce, roast duckling with applesauce, sirloin of beef, and chateau potatoes, green peas, creamed carrots, rice, another potato option. And there were four other courses. Uh, actually, actually uh, five. There was It was a 10-course uh, menu. Uh, another course had foie gras, that fancy-ass French fat and goose liver dish uh, for dessert. There was four options, Waldorf pudding, peaches and chartreuse jelly, chocolate and vanilla eclairs, and French ice cream. Uh, the same day's dinner menu for second class had about half of all that, and it was not served in courses. It was presented more cafeteria style, it seems, but still good. Baked haddock with sharp sauce, curry chicken and rice, spring lamb with mint sauce, roast turkey, cranberry sauce, green peas, puree of turnips, boiled and roast potatoes. Uh, for dessert, wine, jelly, coconut sandwich, American ice cream, nuts, and fruit. It's pretty good. Now let's check out for comparison the third class menu. Way less fancy. Big drop off. Uh, rice soup, fresh bread, cabin biscuits. Those sound rough. Those sound like something you could use to play a game of backyard baseball with after they've been out for a day. Uh, also roast beef with brown gravy, sweet corn, boiled potatoes. Two options for dessert in third class. There was plum pudding and then there was go fuck yourself if you don't like plum pudding. Uh, no filet mignon, no second class meat options. Now on to third-class accommodations. The general room was the heart of the third-class community. It was their main meeting room, paneled in pine and, fin and finished in white with teak furniture. The dining room, situated on the middle deck, could seat approximately 470 passengers in each of its three sections. The pantries and galley were situated behind the dining room. There was no proper saloon, but there was a small males-only smoking room with a bar. Sorry, ladies, Lucifina's fuming. Uh, there were over 1,000 third-class passengers on the Titanic. Decorators and architects for the White Star Line knew that many of the third-class passengers would be crossing the Atlantic to start new lives. The White Star Line wanted, to, wanted them to remember the journey as a symbolic beginning of their new lives and to enjoy themselves. So the rooms comprised mainly of two to six berth rooms, unlike third-class living on other passenger liners. Uh, the rooms weren't dormitory style, but were actually individual cabins. Each cabin had its own sink, like second-class, shared bathrooms, but only two bathtubs for 1,000 passengers. One for men, one for women. Luckily, an attendant would wash this tub in between uses. And so that no one would hog these bathrooms, they, they had a very strict no masturbation policy. The attendant was trained to recognize the sounds of both male and female masturbation and do what was needed to put a stop to it. Oh my heck, that's not true. Uh, what is true is that third-class passengers paid between three and eight pounds per ticket, around 40 bucks U.S., which according to the inflation calculator is equivalent to about a thousand bucks today, which at first sounded crazy to me. But that includes three meals a day for a five and a half day trip. Thinking about it like that, it doesn't sound that expensive to me because a thousand dollars, you know, that's like five nights in a hotel and three meals a day and a trip across the Atlantic. Altogether, it sounds pretty reasonable. Now let's talk about fourth class. Big drop off. Uh, might as well start with the April 14th, 1912 fourth class dinner menu. Corn chowder, cabin biscuits, and basically some fruit not seemed uh, suitable for the other classes of guests. There was no dessert. There were no individual cabins for fourth class. There was essentially some barracks down near the boilers with prison-style bunk beds, slightly better mattresses, where everyone slept in the same room. There was no bathtub for anyone, only one toilet for just over 500 people, no lunch, 
two meals a day with a fresh bread and butter snack service, but the bread really wasn't fresh. It was probably whatever first class hadn't eaten the night before. There was no common room. There was no saloon access. At night, men were allowed to take flasks of liquor and smoke and drink and play cards near one of the ship's boilers. Sounds fucking terrible. The hardest part about fourth class was that you were literally locked in the lower holds of the hole for the entire duration of the trip. There was no windows. You were not allowed to come up to any of the decks for fresh air at any point. And it got really hot down in fourth class. Because of proximity to the boilers, the temperature would vary between about 98 and 105 degrees Fahrenheit, they estimate, for the entire voyage. The risk of heat stroke, very real at those temperatures. And you felt more movement than in other parts of the ship. So seasickness, common. I imagine it smelled strongly of puke since ventilation also poor. And to save electricity to power the nighttime entertainment for first class, and because you had to share your living space with 500 other people, there was a strict lights out policy in effect between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. You were plunged into utter and complete darkness for nine hours a day. Tickets were only two pounds each, about 10 bucks or 250 bucks in today's money. Uh, Finally, none of the fourth class passengers would survive the sinking because no one bothered to unlock the doors that led to their dungeony portion of the ship. And some think had the ship not sunk, several of the fourth class passengers would have died anyways due to frequent and often deadly sea rat attacks. Now let's talk about the Titanic's crew. Uh, Actually, one last thing about fourth class. It's not real. Uh, There was only first, second, and third class. Come on, what the flip? (laughs) No one was getting locked down in the hole. That's crazy talk. And attacked by sea rats and never let out to get fresh air. Uh, (laughs) But... I thought about that lie so much, it became real to me as over the course of research. And I would have to catch myself like, God, that would suck to be in fourth class. And I'm like, you idiot, you're making it up. Uh, just as the passengers were divided into separate areas of the ship, the crew was also separated from the passengers. The White Star Line intended that crew and passengers would not meet privately at any time during the voyage. But we'll see later. You know, they definitely would meet due to that holy shit, we are sinking situation. Uh, the engine room staff was housed on the starboard side at the forward end of the ship on the lower, middle, upper, and saloon decks. Two spiral staircases connected their rooms to the boiler and engine rooms. Such a maze, these big ships. Uh, As expected for the times, there were very few women in the crew, only 23. Those 23 women, part of a small, uh, excuse me, a small part of the estimated 885 total crew members on board. And how much sexual harassment did those poor women endure? Can't imagine it would have been fun to be a young, single, cute woman on a ship full of dick. Or maybe the most fun. Would have maybe had your pick of the litter. Hey, Lucifina. Now for a quick word about a safety feature. If you're familiar with the story of the Titanic, you have probably heard about the claim that it was unsinkable. Why was that claim made? Uh, First off, it wasn't actually some huge public claim. It's not like there was a giant ad campaign revolving around the Titanic being literally unsinkable. That's an exaggeration. But that claim was made. And many did think it was truly unsinkable. It was called that because the ship's head designer, Thomas Andrews, made some design modifications to make it more safe than previous liners, and the new safety features were advertised. Some passengers were so certain that the ship was unsinkable that they initially remained calm as the ship literally sank. So what were the new safety modifications? By far the biggest was 16 compartments within the hull whose doors could be shut by the flick of a switch. It was believed that the ability to quickly close off these compartments if any of them were breached could keep the ship afloat even if it suffered severe damage. But these compartments, sadly, just didn't fucking work. To be fair to Thomas Andrews, it was very hard to beta test something like that back in 1912 without any simulation computers. Uh, They were, of course, presumed to be watertight, but the bulkheads were not capped at the top. In nautical usage, a bulkhead is a dividing wall. 
or barrier between compartments in a ship. The ship's builders claim that four of the compartments could be flooded at once without endangering the liner's bu- uh, bu- ah, buoyancy. Uh, I know how to pronounce that word, but it's still tricky for me. Uh, and this advertised fact led many to claim that the Titanic was indeed unsinkable. But of course, it was pretty sinkable. Uh, those compartments, as it turned out, once filled up with water and all, all the pressure that went along with all that water, not totally watertight. Almost, but not completely. And almost watertight doesn't keep a ship from sinking nearly as well as totally watertight does. Okay, now let's meet some of the Titanic's most famous passengers. For many of them, we'll also catch up with them later in the timeline. And we'll meet some of the crew before we jump into the timeline uh, as well. And then we'll jump into the sinking timeline. John Jacob Astor IV was not just the richest man in the Titanic, but also one of the richest men in the entire world at the time of his death. His estimated worth of $87 million, equivalent to over $2.3 billion today, Astor was the great-grandson of John Jacob Astor, a fur trader and real estate investor who became a leading businessman of his day and the founder of an American fur trade dynasty. John Jacob Astor I opened a fur shop in New York City in 1786, which would later become the American Fur Company. Making that fur money. That is an old-timey way to make a fortune, if there ever was one. You don't, you don't hear about a lot of fur moguls today. Fur is not nearly as much in demand today. Uh, when I Googled, where do you buy fur? I was taken first to an ad for furu.com, a company that mostly sells a product called fur oil. And fur oil is like beard oil, but for pubic hair. Seriously. The, <laughs> the product description on their website says, specifically designed for pubic hair and skin, our signature blend of lightweight oils gently softens hair and clears pores. <laughs> Uh, for fewer ingrowns and healthier skin. And you know what? If, if that's what you're getting, good for you. But like, is there a big market for pubic hair oil? When pubic hair oil comes up in a search for buying fur faster than actually buying fur, safe to say, not a lot of fur being sold. Uh, that being said, there is still some money in this now niche business. At Neiman Marcus, I was I was shocked uh, to find this. You can buy a an $87,000 Russian sable stroller coat right now. But enough fur talk. Uh, Astor, the wealthiest man in the country at the time uh, when selling fur could make you a true fortune, died in 1848. At his death, estimated to be worth about $20 million, the bulk of which went to his son, William Backhouse Astor. And William's son, William Jr., was John Jacob Astor IV's father. Astor IV, uh, interesting person. Among Astor's accomplishments was writing A Journey in Other Worlds in 1894, a science fiction novel about life in the year 2000 on the planet Saturn and Jupiter. Based on reviews, it does not seem like a real page turner. Doesn't seem like it sold well in its day. (laughs) Amazon reviewer James Latimer gave it one star writing, I started the book. I could not connect the plot to the characters. It was a struggle to connect what the book was about, and it was easier to just move on to another book that was better reading. (laughs) That review killed me the first time I read it. It was so hard to understand what the fuck this book was even about. I found it best to just move on to another book. Uh, basically, it was a book written by a dude who had time to write a book because he was born wealthy, and then he was able to publish a book because he was wealthy. The book itself didn't make any money. Astor also pat- patented several inventions, including a bicycle brake in 1898 uh, that's never written about in any real detail, so I'm guessing it didn't actually revolutionize bicycle braking, a vibratory vibratory disintegrator used to produce gas from peat moss that I'm not sure was ever used. You know, you know, I hear about a lot of peat moss gas being harvested. And he invented a pneumatic road improver, improver, something else that shows up in a lot of biographical summaries, but also I don't think was ever used. So basically he was a dude who wrote a book no one fucking cared about and he invented shit that no one used, but he was super wealthy. 
Uh, there was a perception when he was alive that he was an aimless dilettante. Uh, he was given the nickname by one newspaper, Jack Astor. Uh, you know, uh, for New Yorkers in 1897, Astor had the Astoria Hotel built, the world's most luxurious hotel in New York City, adjoining the Waldorf Hotel owned by Astor's cousin and rival, William. The complex uh, became known as the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. It is gorgeous. Awesome hotel, but I'm not impressed. He was money he was born with to build a nice hotel that other people designed and constructed. Okay, fine. Astor 47 was on the ship returning home from a months long honeymoon with his new wife, Madeline Talmadge Force, who was 18, 20 years younger than him. Of course she was 18. And before I move on to that, actually, I know I'm dogging this guy, but he comes up later in these conspiracies towards the end of the episode where he's like seen as just like this big rival of um, JP Morgan. Hopefully I'm getting his name right now. I'm not looking at the notes, but um, I just, I, I wanted to point all that, go into a little more detail here for what's going to come up later where he, he wasn't a big business rival. He was a rich kid who like had a few hotels built with his wealth that he didn't do anything to earn. He was, he was not a big mover and shaker. Uh, he seemed like such a stereotype. He, he, he marries, uh, talking about his 18 year old wife now, uh, 28 years younger than him. He marries, you know, some child young and naive enough to be so impressed by his wealth that she probably didn't immediately realize what a huge tool I think he was. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't, but he seemed like a tool. Uh, the couple's extended honeymoon was actually a way to escape high society gossip. Astor had just been divorced and it was, uh, then he gets, you know, married right away again, relatively unheard of back then. Astor's body was one of the few that was recovered in the Atlantic ocean after the ship went down. Among other possessions, he was found with $2,240 in his pocket, equivalent to roughly 60 grand today. Uh, Noel Leslie, Countess of Roths, was another one of the Titanic's most famous passengers. A popular figure in London society, Leslie became a countess after marrying Norman Evelyn Leslie, Earl of Roths, in 1900. Leslie and her cousin Gladys Cherry booked a trip on the Titanic. After surviving the disaster, the press dubbed her the plucky little countess. And she actually seems super cool. After surviving the sinking of the Titanic, she became heavily involved with the Red Cross during World War I, helping to nurse back to health, among others, her husband, who had been wounded in battle. Then there's Thomas Andrews, that poor bastard, remember his name? He was the ship's architect, the guy who designed it to be the safest ship in the world. His 16 sealable hull compartments were supposed to keep what did happen from happening. He traveled on the Titanic's maiden voyage in order to observe the ship and make recommendations on areas where the ship could be improved. Duh, yeek. When an iceberg damaged the Titanic's hull, the 39-year-old shipbuilder immediately began helping women and children into lifeboats. The BBC reprinted a telegram from the White Star Line, which noted that when last seen, officers say he was throwing overboard deck chairs, other objects to people in water. His chief concern was safety of everyone but himself. I wish we could know how many acted altruistically and heroically like that in their final moments compared to how many people acted cowardly and selfishly. Wouldn't that be super interesting? Out of those who faced certain death, who thought of others and helped, uh, who thought of only themselves, maybe tried pushing others out of the way to get into a lifeboat or something. Interesting little case study regarding human nature. I guess no matter what the ratio was, there were definitely some heroes when the big ship went down. And that is pretty awesome, pretty inspiring. I know we cover a lot of dirt bags on this show. Don't let that ever make you think there aren't also a tremendous amount of fantastic meat sacks out there. So hail Nimrod to people like, uh, to people like Thomas Andrews. Margaret Brown was another known passenger. She'd been born in Mississippi to Irish immigrants, married James Joseph Brown in New York City, and became fabulously wealthy when Brown's mining business took off after striking ore. Brown became a well-known socialite with a penchant for dramatic hats and social activism on the behalf of women and children. She was returning from a voyage around Europe when she decided to book a trip on the Titanic. During the disaster, she reportedly helped to row the lifeboat and demanded that the group of survivors row back to the spot where the ship went down in order to look for survivors. 
a decision opposed by the crewmen in charge of the lifeboat. They were worried that the sinking ship could create some kind of current that would pull the lifeboat, excuse me, down into the depths. This earned her the nickname, her heroic actions, uh, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Her life was immortalized in a Broadway musical called The Unsinkable Molly Brown, later adapted into a Hollywood film. Another important person on the ship was J. Bruce Ismay, the managing director of the White Star Line, the dude who signed off to have this ship built. Ismay survived the sinking of the Titanic, but he never lived down the public scorn he received in the wake of the disaster. He boarded a lifeboat 20 minutes before the ship sank into the Atlantic, later said he turned away as the Titanic slipped beneath the surface of the water, saying, I did not wish to see her go down. I am glad I did not. And Ismay caught a lot of flack for boarding a lifeboat before other passengers. He was ostracized in society, ultimately resigned from his post, kept a low profile for the remainder of his life. He didn't die on the ship, but his career did. His family said he never fully recovered from the ordeal. Another wealthy couple aboard the, uh, aboard the Titanic was Isidore and Ida Strauss. The couple first met after the Civil War when a penniless Isidore Strauss moved to New York City from the Kingdom of Bavaria. Isidore and his brother convinced Roland Macy, founder of Macy's, to let them put a crockery department in the basement of the store. And it went so well that he and his brother eventually became business partners of Macy. And by 1896, they acquired primary ownership of Macy's. Rags to riches. And then Isidore became a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Also, random trivia, his great-great-granddaughter is the singer King Princess, who actually listened to a fair amount via some Spotify playlists. She's fucking great. She's fantastic. Isidore and Ida wouldn't survive the sinking. We'll find out why in the timeline. Uh, Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon and his wife, Lady Lucy Duff Gordon, were two of the most prominent pastors on board the Titanic and also had perhaps the most pompous names ever conjoined into one marriage. Are you fucking kidding me? Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. That feels like a name I would make up and assign to some cartoonishly posh member of British high society. I feel like a medieval trumpet, some kind of herald, you know, let out, let out a trumpet, uh, <laughs> Little serenade every time that Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon entered a room. Just ladies and gentlemen of the Grand Staircase, I present to you Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. Then that dude had to run to the next room to get ready for, you know, announce him again as he moved to some other room. Ladies and gentlemen of the Grand Saloon, I present to you Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. Five minutes later. Ladies and gentlemen, or I guess actually just gentlemen of the first class lavatory, I present to you Sir Cosmo Duff. That's quite enough, Reginald. You're excused for this evening. Sir Cosmo was a major landowner, society figure in the UK known for his fencing skills. Lady Duff Gordon was a top British fashion designer whose innovations included the precursor to the modern day fashion show. Like Ismay in the wake of the tragedy, Sir Duff Gordon received criticism for not adhering to the ship's women and children first evacuation policy. I'm sure that criticism would bum him out on occasion, but then he would remember, I'm Sir Duff Gordon, damn it. My life is worth the lives of 10,000 lesser souls. Uh, sadly, that medieval herald I made up did not survive the sinking. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the lifeboat, I present to you Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. And as the ship I stand on appears to be quickly sinking into the Atlantic's murky depths, I bid you adieu. Thank you, Reginald. That'll be all. Uh, crazily, a few years later, 1915, Lady Duff Gordon would escape an oceany death again after canceling her voyage on the doomed Lusitania, a passenger ship sunk in World War I by a German U-boat. Uh, another rich dude on board the Titanic was Benjamin Guggenheim, 
member of the powerful Guggenheim family, which earned its fortune in the mining industry. He was traveling on the ship with his mistress, Leotine Obart, scandal, and a number of staffers. When the ship started sinking, Guggenheim was initially optimistic about the ship's prospects, telling his lover, we will soon see each other again. It's just a repair. Tomorrow, the Titanic will go on again. Guggenheim's body would never be found. At some point, he passed on a message to his estranged wife via a survivor. Tell her I played the game out straight to the end, he reportedly said. No woman shall be left aboard the ship because Ben Guggenheim is a coward. Uh, his mistress would survive the sinking. I'm sure his wife was thrilled, estranged or not. Uh, a not rich but well-known person aboard the ship was Helen Churchill Candy. Helen was an author and a single mother who penned the early feminist work, How Women May Earn a Living, in 1900. She traveled extensively, befriended a number of prominent people like Teddy Roosevelt, William Jennings Bryan. Despite breaking her ankle during a chaotic evacuation, she teamed up with Molly Brown to man the oars of a lifeboat and return to look for survivors in the water. So good on Helen Churchill Candy. One more distinguished passenger who unfortunately wouldn't survive the sinking uh, before we quickly meet a few crew members. Despite having the funniest name in the world, Archibald Willingham Butt <laughs> was a distinguished man. And you heard that name right. A.W. Butt, Archie Butt, Archie Willingham Butt, Mr. Butt. Uh, Mr. Butt started out as a reporter and it's B-U-T-T too. Uh, later enlisting in the U.S. Army during the Spanish-American War, he served in Cuba and the Philippines. He became uh, President Teddy Roosevelt's military aide in 1908, served as Roosevelt's successor, uh, or served Roosevelt's successor, William Taft, in the same capacity. May have been prompted to go to Europe because remaining neutral in the bitter quarrel between Roosevelt and Taft, two men he worked for, he would, he'd, he'd been driven to a nervous breakdown. Maybe he had that breakdown because of all the teasing about his name. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the first class dining room, I present to you Archie Willie Little Bit Stinky Hambutt. Damn you, Sir Cosmo. Call off your rapscallion herald. Archie wouldn't survive. His body would never be recovered. Uh, President Taft would break down weeping while delivering a eulogy at Butt's funeral and then la laugh a little bit probably, you know, because of his name. Talking about all the passengers, I should point out if you've seen the Titanic movie, Jack and Rose, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, were entirely fictional, uh, not even based on any Titanic passengers. Now that we know a bit about some of the passengers on board for the Titanic's fateful debut and final voyage, let's meet a few of the people in charge of the Titanic. It's noble crew. Let's start off with some serious sadness. The maiden voyage of the Titanic was to be 62-year-old Captain Edward John Smith's last voyage before retiring, literally a few days away from retirement. His monthly wage was 105 pounds, according to inflation calculators, worth about 12 pounds today, or 12,000 pounds, excuse me, today. <laughs> it's less. It's weird. On salaries, it goes the other way. Uh, no, about $16,000, almost $200,000 a year. Smith was married with a young daughter, very little is known about his final actions on the Titanic after the collision. He was last seen on the bridge of the sinking ship, and he did go down with his ship, and his body was never recovered. Time for more crew sadness. In a tragic act of fate, Henry Wilde was serving as chief officer on the Olympic, but then was transferred last minute to the Titanic for her maiden voyage. Shit. When the ship hit the iceberg, he took control of the even-numbered lifeboats, was last seen trying to free some collapsible lifeboats. His body also never recovered. His monthly wage was 25 pounds, works out to less than 50 grand a year. Big drop in salary from captain to chief, chief officer. The ship's first officer was William Murdoch, 39 years old. He'd served on a number of White Star ships. He was on the bridge at the time of the collision. He was the one who gave the order to turn the ship after the iceberg was spotted, obviously too late. He helped to load women and children into the lifeboats, also did not survive the disaster. His body also never recovered. No salary info for him. 
Charles Lightoller was the highest ranking officer to survive the wreck and how he survived is nuts. He was trying to load the lifeboats as quickly as possible, was still trying to free the collapsible lifeboats when the Titanic sank. He was sucked underwater and then was blown back to the surface by air escaping from a vent. He, he got fucking saved by a giant air bubble. Once he made it back to the surface, he managed to climb onto an overturned collapsible lifeboat and then survived. Dude was a tough son of a bitch. Uh, he'd begun his sailing career at the age of 13, already been in a shipwreck before the Titanic. After the sinking, he went right back to work on the RMS Oceanic, another liner for the White Star Line. Then he fought in World War I, where another one of his ships sank, uh, where he also depth-charged a German U-boat into oblivion and shot up a German Zeppelin. He was awarded numerous medals for bravery in battle, then retired as a commander at the end of the war. And then in World War II at the age of 70, dude used his private boat to rescue 127 Allied soldiers in the Dunkirk evacuation. Died at the age of 78 in London, spending his final years managing a boatyard and probably getting in fucking fistfights. Hail Nimrod, Charles Lightoller. You should have been knighted, good sir. A giant among men. Uh, now for two people who weren't high ranking at all, but would end up playing huge roles in the sinking of the Titanic. Making just five pounds a month, Lookouts, Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee were the first to see the iceberg. Fleet radioed the information to the bridge. Fleet survived in lifeboat six, Lee in lifeboat 13. Uh, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride paid less than three pounds a month. Robbery were the radio operators whose main duty involved sending private telegrams between passengers. But as we'll see in detail later, they also received multiple warnings about icebergs in the area that were not taken seriously. Maybe... Pay the guys in charge of making sure you're about to die warnings are taken more seriously would have been a good idea. After contacting the Carpathia, a nearby ship, and sending out multiple distress signals, both operators stayed at their posts until water poured into the Macroni Marconi room. Bride survived by climbing into an overturned hole, excuse me, of collapsible B. Phillips reached collapsible B also, but died sometime before dawn. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there were two bands aboard the Titanic. Each musician only paid four pounds a month. Ah. After the collision, they uh, grouped on the deck and played to keep the spirits of the passengers up as they got onto the lifeboats. How eerie is this? Some survivors state that the band played until the very end. Many claim that the hymn Nearer My God to Thee was the last song played. None of the musicians survived. Holy shit, that is quite the visual. What a crazy final series of moments. Playing your instrument as water engulfs you. I wonder if anyone died like super annoyed that someone else in the band was playing the wrong note, you know, like again, it's fucking Hubert. It's B flat, flat, not sharp. At least I won't hear, ever have to hear that again. I wonder if the fake Harold was with the band at the time he died. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the Titanic, I present to you the first class band. They will not be playing an encore this evening for we are drowning. Now that we know about, uh, you know, uh, what the ship was like, uh, have a rough idea what the ship was like, who was on it, let's get to the sinking itself. In this week's, at times, minute-by-minute minute timeline. Minute-by-minute-by-minute-by-minute. I keep holding on. I keep holding on. You just got a little bit of McDonalding. And now it's time suck timeline time. Right after a quick sponsor break. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. 
It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. 
Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you for listening to our sponsors, Meat Sacks. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Nineteen oh nine. Construction begins on the Titanic at the Harlan and Wolf Shipyard on Queens Island in Belfast. Belfast. Excuse me. Uh, the slipway used to build the Titanic was the biggest ever constructed, taking up three of the existing slipways at the shipyard. A slipway, also known as a boat ramp or launch or boat deployer, is a ramp on the shore by which ships or boats can be moved to and from the water. Titanic construction resulted in 246 serious injuries and eight deaths. Safety regulations on construction sites uh, a wee bit more relaxed back in 1909 than they are now. On May 31st, 1911, the Titanic hit the water for the first time in front of about 100,000 spectators. It's quite a crowd for a boat. It was then towed to a spot where her engines, funnels, and other parts could be installed and the interior finished. Almost a year later, on April 2nd, the Titanic was first tested at sea over a period of 11 hours. She was sailed at different speeds, turned, stopped. In total, she went about 80 miles during the tests and then returned to Belfast to have the paperwork signed that would declare her seaworthy, which she was. She just wasn't iceberg worthy. On April 10th, the Titanic set off on its maiden and only voyage from Southampton in England to New York City. As it left the dock, it was so big that its weight caused another liner, the New York, to break away from its cables. It took about an hour to get the New York under control and the Titanic out of the docks. The Titanic picked up additional passengers in Cherbourg, France, and that evening set sail for Queenstown, Ireland. The following day, April 11th, the Titanic stopped safely in Queenstown to pick up more passengers and mail, and at 1.30 p.m., departed across the Atlantic Ocean towards New York. The New York Tribune ran a two-sentence article on page six of its 14-page edition, on the 11th, about the start of the maiden voyage of the Titanic. The entirety of the coverage was, the White Star Liner Titanic, which sailed from Southampton yesterday, is now the largest vessel of the world. But how long will it be before there is a super Titanic? Amazing coverage! Oh, to be an old-timey newspaper writer. Doesn't seem like a very tough job, based on that example. Uh, Three days later, on April 14th, the Titanic began to receive warnings from other ships that there was ice drifting around Newfoundland, where they were currently located, They'd made it most of the way across the Atlantic, 325 nautical miles from the tip of Newfoundland, 1,084 from New York, four days into the voyage. At 9 a.m., the Titanic received the following warning. Captain, Titanic, westbound streamers report bergs, growlers, and field ice in 42 degrees north from 49 to 51 degrees west, April 12th. Compliments, bar. Uh, Titanic Captain Edward John Smith wrote back, Captain, who gives a shit? My dick, suck it. We're unfucking sinkable, bitch. Compliments, Smith. JK. Uh, Captain Smith did not write that. It would have been kind of funny if he did, though. Uh, he didn't write anything back. He did, he did cancel his scheduled lifeboat drill. Not sure why. At 1.42 p.m., the Titanic crew received another warning. Captain Smith, Titanic. Have met moderate variable winds and clear fine weather since leaving. Greek steamer Athenae reports passing icebergs and large quantity of field ice today in latitude 41.51 north. Longitude 49.52 west. Wish you and the Titanic all success, Commander. And then at 1.45 p.m., they got a third message. America passed two large icebergs in 41.27 degree north, 50.8 degree west on April 14th. Okay, so it was no secret. I'm probably reading the degree dot thing. Probably supposed to say different nautical terms, but you get it. Uh, It was no secret that the seas were littered with icebergs that day. 
and the lookouts were, I'm strongly guessing, told to be extra vigilant when it came to spotting them. At 5.50 p.m., due to the iceberg warnings, Captain Smith decided to change course and head slightly south. However, he did not decide to lower the ship's speed. Had it not been the ship's maiden voyage, I wonder if he would have, because they say that the speed contributed to the sinking. Uh, but, you know, the head of the company's on board. He knows the press is waiting in New York City. If the ship's uh, late. A lot of people are going to be pissed at him. And it's his last voyage. Pride probably played into his decision to continue full speed ahead. Don't want to end a long, successful career on a down note. 9.40 p.m., they get another message from Masaba to Titanic and all eastbound ships. Ice report in latitude 40 degrees north to 41 degrees, 25 degrees north. Longitude 49 degrees west to longitude 50 degrees, 30 degrees west. Saw much heavy ice pack and great number large icebergs. Also field ice. Weather good, clear. Wireless operator Jack Phillips was handling passengers' messages and for unknown reasons, never passed this warning on to the Titanic's bridge. Maybe because he was being paid around a pound a month and wasn't terribly invested in his job. I'm guessing. Actually, Phillips had been exceptionally busy clearing a backlog of messages caused by an earlier wireless breakdown. His failure to respond to this and other incoming signals is cited as one of the principal causes of the Titanic disaster. Fucking Jack! Fake DiCaprio Jack was a Titanic hero. Real-life operator Jack fucked up big time. Real-life Jack, like movie Jack, uh, also would die with the sinking of the ship. Uh, 10 p.m., the shift changed on the bridge with First Officer William Murdoch relieving Second Officer Charles Lightoller as the officer on, the, on watch. Lookouts Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee begin their watch in the Titanic's crow's nest. The night is unusually calm, making icebergs more difficult to see as there are no waves crashing against the icebergs. Adding substantially uh, substantially to the difficulties, difficulties in spotting the icebergs, if I could talk, is the fact that the lookouts also did not have binoculars. Yes. Mm-hmm. No binoculars. That would make being a lookout more difficult. Why didn't they have binoculars? You may wonder. And I have an answer. David Dumbshit Blair. David Blair was a merchant seaman for the White Star Line who was supposed to be working on the Titanic. But then he was reassigned just before its maiden voyage. In his hasty departure, dude accidentally took a key with him to a storage locker that held, yep, the binoculars for the crow's nest. Next to Jack Phillips not passing along messages to the bridge, David taking the keys with him is the main reason most think the Titanic sank. David would live another 43 years after the ship sinking. He would die at the age of 80 in Hendon, Middlesex. And this wasn't his only huge maritime mistake. <laughs> he was also blamed when working as the navigator for the White Star Line's RMS Oceanic running aground just two years later in 1914. Damn it, dumb shit, David! Guessing he was not invited to the White Star Line company Christmas party in 1915. Uh, Blair's locker key would end up resurfacing at an auction in 2010 where it would sell for over $130,000. Uh, back to the Titanic's final night. At 11 p.m., the Titanic begins to receive a sixth message about ice in their area. The nearby Californian radios the Titanic. Say, old man, we are stopped and surrounded by ice. An annoyed Jack Phillips, still recovering from an earlier wireless messaging system malfunction, responds, and I'm not now making this one up, shut up, shut up, I am busy, I am working Cape Race. Fucking idiot. Cape Race was a wireless station located at Cape Race, Newfoundland, Canada. Uh, clearly the line was popping that night, but that, ah, in hindsight, that looks really bad. I'm like, hey, we're surrounded by ice, we're near you, we're totally surrounded by ice. He's like, shut up, I'm busy, I'm doing some stuff. I got some earwax I'm trying to clean right now, goddammit. Uh, when I talk about wireless communication, also, I, of course, do not mean cell phones or the internet. I'm talking about wireless telegraphy, transmission by of telegraph signals by telegraphy. I'm guessing. I should look that one up. <laughs> it's telegraph with a Y at the end. I'm going to say, I'm going to say telegraphy, but maybe telegraphy. 
ships started using this kind of technology to communicate just a dozen years earlier in 1900. By 11 p.m., most of the Titanic's passengers had retired to their rooms for the evening. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the First Class Saloon, Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon bids you adieu for this evening. Please stand aside and allow him to depart the room with the proper respect and dignity due. At 11.40 p.m., Frederick Fleet, the lookout in the crow's nest, spotted an object ahead, ran, rang the warning bell three times, called down to the bridge to say iceberg right ahead, and William Murdoch, the first officer on duty, gave the command to turn the ship hard. But the command would come, of course, too late. 37 seconds later, the Titanic hit a giant iceberg on its starboard side, and the massive, heavy, and jagged ice bashed holes along the side of the ship. After 10 minutes, water is pouring in, or excuse me, the water started pouring in immediately. After 10 minutes, it had poured in to reach a, a uh, depth of 4.3 meters above the keel in the forward compartments. No one will ever know exactly how big this iceberg was. It's, it's reported to have stuck up out of the water 50 to 100 feet, and the visible portion was estimated to be between 200 and 400 feet long. This visible portion would have only accounted for, you know, 10% of its total size. Some think the iceberg may have been half a mile long underwater and displaced roughly a billion tons of seawater. So a big, big iceberg, enormous. At that size, it might as well have been made out of steel. At 12.15 a.m. on the early morning of April 15th, 1912, Jack Phillips types out CQD, the International Distress Call at the time, and MGY, the Titanic's call letters, along with the ship's position. Captain Smith ordered the crew to get the lifeboats and begin boarding women and children first and must have also thought, are you fucking kidding me? My last trip! This happened on my last trip! Unbelievable. Uh, the 20 boats had space for only 1,178 people out of more than 2,200 people on board. Why didn't the Titanic have more lifeboats? A lot of people have asked this. It wasn't because he didn't have room for more. It could have held 64 lifeboats instead of 20. And it, and it wasn't to save money, these fewer lifeboats. The White Star Line spent $7.5 million on the ship and the extra lifeboats, and it did have a few extra submersibles, uh, which is why sometimes I think it's like 24 uh, total. But these extra lifeboats would have cost less than $20,000. They didn't have the extra lifeboats because simply, legally, they just didn't have to. The laws regulating how many boats a ship of that size were required to have were seriously outdated. Also, the company had such faith in the 16-compartment hull safety system that they didn't think they really needed lifeboats. They, they really did think the ship was virtually unsinkable. And, and that worst case, it would take many days for it to sink, plenty of time for another ship to come to its rescue. Whoops. Uh, the Frankfurt was among the first to respond to the distress, distress call, but the liner was 170 nautical miles away, 315 kilometers away to the south. Other ships also offered assistance, including the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic, but they were even further away. At 12.25 a.m., the Carpathia, a ship nearby, was alerted to the emergency with the signal, come at once, we have struck a berg. It's a CQD, old man. I love that they include old man in many of these messages. Uh, the ship's old man, Captain Arthur H. Rostron, wired that he was coming to the rescue. He was only 93 kilometers away, but it would take him more than three hours to get there. Meanwhile, passengers waiting to uh, enter lifeboats are being entertained by the Titanic's musicians who initially played in the first-class lounge before eventually moving to the ship's deck. Ah, oh, my God, so stressful. 12.45 a.m., Phillips switched from using CQD to SOS, the new international distress single, signal. It was only the second time that the SOS code had ever been used since its approval. Another officer began to send up distress rockets to try and alert other ships. The Titanic fired the first of eight distress rockets at 12.45. Lifeboat number seven on the starboard side uh, was the first lifeboat lowered at that same time. 
had only around 27 people on board. Sources are unclear exactly how many, even though it had room for 65. Why did this happen? Well, many of the first lifeboats lowered uh, were way under capacity, partially because of the crewman's fears that the davits, these crane-like machines that lowered the lifeboats to the water, would be unable to hold a fully loaded lifeboat. In addition, many passengers were initially afraid to leave the ship, uh, still believing that the Titanic was unsinkable, despite, you know, just watching it sink. The lookouts now sight a ship less than 10 nautical miles away with their naked eyes since they don't have binoculars. Thank you, David Dumpshit Blair. But the crew is unable to contact it. The rockets are also unsuccessful at drawing attention as the crewmen aboard the California saw the rockets but couldn't figure out exactly where they were coming from. So what was the ship that lookouts saw? Historians think it was a Norwegian fishing vessel fish, fishing vessel uh, that was illegally hunting seals. And those sneaky seal clubbers didn't want to visit, you know, or be visited by any other ships full of people who might bear witness to all their illegal and probably super tasty seal mate. At 12.55 a.m., number five became just the second lifeboat to leave the Titanic. As it was being lowered, two male passengers literally jumped off the ship into the boat, injuring one of the female occupants. Not sure who those dudes were, uh, and I'm guessing they felt bad for injuring some poor woman, but also probably felt pretty good later about not dying. A few minutes later, lifeboat number six is launched, containing passenger Molly Brown. The lifeboat is commanded by quartermaster Robert Hitchens, who was at the wheel when the Titanic struck the iceberg. His subsequent actions, notably his refusal to look for survivors because they will only find what he called stiffs, annoyed the shit out of the other occupants, notably Molly Brown, who threatened to throw Hitchens overboard. Hitchens did not seem like an awesome dude. His wife and kids would later leave him. And in 1933, he would spend four years in prison for trying to kill a dude who had sold him a boat. Uh, at 1 a.m., number three is lowered, carried uh, approximately 39 people, 12 of whom are part of the ship's crew. Around the same time, a crew member spots water at the base, E-deck of the Grand Staircase, the big boat filling up fast. All those fake fourth-class passengers locked up in the bottom of the hull have already drowned. Back at the lifeboats, number one was launched with only 12 people, could have held 40. Lifeboat number one was an emergency cutter, smaller than a standard lifeboat, designed for quick lowering uh, to like do stuff like, uh, you know, save somebody who's fallen overboard. Among the passengers of Lifeboat One are first-class passengers Sir Cosmo Edmund Duff Gordon and his wife Lucy. Seven of the occupants were crewmen. Duff Gordon paid each of them five pounds, reportedly to replace lost clothing and gear, but possibly, according to later accusations, as a bribe to keep the crew from letting anyone else into their boat. Ladies and gentlemen, still trying to board Lifeboat Number One. Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon has paid the crew to let you drown. He is a dirty, conniving bastard and will not even take his loyal and long-serving herald aboard with him. And I rue the day I ever entered into his service. That's quite enough, Reginald. Your services are no longer required. I release you from employment. At 1.10 a.m., number eight was among the first lifeboats lowered on the port side, launched with only 28 people, including first-class pastor Lucy Noel Martha, Countess of Roths, who would later man the tiller, probably something she never thought she'd have to do as a countess. Isidore and Ida Strauss offered seats to number eight, but Isidore refuses to disobey the order of women and children first. Ida, in turn, refuses to leave her husband's side, reportedly saying, where you go, I go, and neither would survive. Damn, that is love. Uh, I've always really liked Macy's, and now I have one more reason to really love them, in addition to reasonably priced, quality clothes and kitchenware. Uh, sucks that it looks like Macy's may not survive COVID-19. But yeah, that was a touching, touching death right there. My God, uh, she chose to die with her husband. 1.20 a.m., number 10 is launched among the occupants, nine-week-old Milvina Dean, 
who would many years later become the last living survivor of the disaster. She would die in 2009 at the age of 97. Then number nine in the stern starboard side is lowered with some 56 people on board, almost full. One of the occupants, American businessman Benjamin Guggenheim's alleged mistress, Guggenheim and his valet would later change into formal attire, and he reportedly said, we've dressed up in our best and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. His body would never be recovered. Damn, that is some fucking dignity in death. Dude got dressed up to die. That blows my mind. That's actually super, super cool, I think. He wasn't going to meet the Reaper wearing sweatpants and a tank top. Put on his tux. Lucifina finds that super sexy and says she may have visited and rewarded Guggenheim on the other side. Hail Lucifina. Uh, 1.25 a.m., possibly not understanding the direness of the situation, the Olympic radioed, are you steering southerly to meet us? The Titanic responds, we are putting the women off in the boats. While still hours away, the Olympic would soon be informed by the Carpathia of the Titanic sinking. A few minutes later, number 12 is lowered with about half of its seats empty. However, it will eventually carry more than 70 people. At 1.30 a.m., amid the growing panic, several male passengers tried to board number 14, causing 5th Officer Harold Lowe to fire his gun three times as a warning. After the sinking of the Titanic, Lowe would return to look for survivors in the water. He would pull several men to safety and rescue those in partially flooded collapsible lifeboat A. For his bravery, Harold would receive a huge reception upon his return to his hometown of Barmouth. Over 1,300 people attended. And the next year he got married, went on to have two kids. Uh, meanwhile, wireless telegraph operator Jack Phillips continues to send out distress calls with growing desperation. Women and children in boats cannot last much longer. The crew then launches number 13, followed by number 15, which held many third-class passengers. As it's being lowered, number 15 nearly lands on number 13, which had drifted under it. However, the crewmen of number 13 were able to cut the launch ropes and row to safety. At 1.40 a.m., collapsible C is lowered. Among its occupants are White Star Chairman J. Bruce Ismay. Although Ismay would later claim that no women or children were in the area when he boarded the lifeboat, others refuted that, and it does sound like bullshit. His decision not to go down with the ship resulted in many branding him a coward, and again, this label would follow him for the rest of his life. He would never recover from being associated with the sinking of the Titanic and for not giving up his seat to a woman or a child. He would die in London in 1937 at the age of, 30, of 74. 1.45 a.m., number two, an emergency cutter was launched under the command of 4th Officer Boxhall, about 20 people on board. After number two, number 11 is lowered with 50 people. Number four then ready for launch. Madeline Astor, some five months pregnant, is helped onto the boat by her husband, John Jacob Astor. When Astor is asked if he can, uh, when Astor asks if he can join her, second officer Lytaller, who followed the order of women and children first, strictly refused, and Astor apparently did not press the issue and stepped away. Did probably ran to his cabin to, to work on, a, I don't know, another invention no one would care about. <laughs> right? Spent his final moments trying to make a patent. Or writing out some patent for design like a for something like an at-home rubber band maker or a paper mache switchblade or something. Uh, his body would later be found in the wreckage. By 2 a.m., two hours and 20 minutes after hitting the iceberg, the only lifeboats that remained on the Titanic were three of the collapsible boats. The ship itself was in terrible shape. The Titanic's bow, the forward part of the hull, the point usually most forward when the vessel is underway, had sunk so low uh, that the stern's propellers were now clearly visible above the water. Frantic and scared crewmen lowered collapsible lifeboat D from the roof of the officer's quarters. More than 20 people got on. Then just as the Titanic's bow began to go under, collapsible A was swept out to sea by a wave crashing onto the deck. About 20 people would manage to get into the boat, which was partially filled with water. Most would die. By the time lifeboat 14 came to the aid of lifeboat D, only 12 were alive. Hypothermia is a bitch. The water pastures were getting wet or, you know, or falling into water. 
that was negative 2.2 degrees Celsius or 28 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature was actually below freezing. Only salt and movement kept it from turning into ice. At that temperature, you can freeze to death in just 15 minutes. Three dead bodies were left in the boat, which would be discovered a month later by the Oceanic. As crewmen tried to release collapsible B, it fell, and before it could be righted, it swept off of the Titanic. Around 30 men found safety on the still-overturned lifeboat, including wireless operator Bride and second officer Lightoller. Those men would later be taken aboard numbers 4 and 12. Captain Smith now releases the remaining crew, saying it's every man for himself. Uh, and again, Smith reportedly last seen on the bridge, and his body would never be recovered. Just one trip away from retirement, that poor bastard. At 2.17 a.m., Jack Phillips sends out one final distress signal. He reportedly made it to the overturned collapsible lifeboat B, but succumbed to exposure and died from the cold. His body would never be found. At 2.18 a.m., the lights on the Titanic go out, plunging the ship into darkness. Due to the tireless efforts of the ship's engineers, the Titanic's lights had stayed on long after they should have. The engineers also kept the radio running, which put out distress signals until minutes before the ship sank. Not one of the 25 engineers would survive. As the Titanic's bow continued to sink, the stern rose higher and higher out of the water, straining the middle of the boat, and then the massive ship broke in two between the third and fourth funnels, and the pieces kept sinking. Reports would later speculate that it took some six minutes for the bow section, traveling at approximately 30 miles an hour to reach the ocean bottom. The stern momentarily settled back in the water before rising again, eventually becoming vertical. What a crazy sight to see. It stayed in that position for a few minutes before beginning its final plunge. Water pressure allegedly caused the stern, which still had air inside, to implode as it sank. The stern is the back or aftmost part of the ship or, or boat, opposite the bow. bow. At 2.20 a.m., April 15th, 1912, the stern disappeared completely into the ocean and the Titanic was gone. Just two hours and 40 minutes earlier, all was well. Everyone was enjoying themselves. Everyone ex except, of course, the imaginary fourth-class passengers, uh, many of whom had already been eaten by sea rats. Uh, but seriously, all those happy passengers were ready to enjoy two more days on the boat due to arrive in New York the morning of the 17th. And then it all went to shit so quick. Now hundreds of people floating in the freezing water. The cold would soon, soon claim most of them. Although there was still room in most of the lifeboats, crewmen were fearful that the boats would be swamped, causing them to sink. Despite this fear, several lifeboats did return to rescue swimming people, and a few people were pulled to safety. But most will still die from the cold. Over the next several hours, numerous ships try in vain to contact the Titanic. The U.S. would put the death toll at 1,517 passengers and crew, the British at 1,503. No one knows the real figure because official counts of a boat's passengers are only done when a ship reaches its destination to account for stowaways and passenger movement at ports. So no one knows exactly how many people were aboard the Titanic when it died or when it went down. So maybe there weren't any fourth class passengers, but there could have been stowaways. Overall, what kind of passengers tended to die and who survived? Titanic researcher Je uh, Chuck Anessi crunched the numbers, breaking down the demographics, and he found that 97.22% of the 144 female first class passengers were rescued, while only 32 0.57% of their 175 male counterparts were saved. Ultimately, he found that male second-class passengers fared the worst uh, in terms of survival. Only 14 out of 168 made it out alive. The total survival rate for women, actually 74%. The male survival rate, just barely 20%. Clearly, there is an important lesson to be learned here, male meat sacks. And that is, fuck chivalry. Am I right or am I right? If, what, if your boat starts sinking, remember three things, dudes. One, you are, odds are, stronger than most of the women around you. Two, 
Only the strong survive. Three, every man for himself. Do what you need to do. Sweep the leg. Mercy is for the weak. At 3.30 a.m. That was a Karate Kid quote, if you were wondering. At 3.30 a.m., the last part, not the whole thing. That'd be super weird. At 3.30 a.m., the Carpathia, one of the Cunard liners, Cunard Lines liners. That's so awkward talking about these ships. This whole episode, I've hated it. Where it's like, it's like the White Star line and then the ship is a liner. The White Star Lines liner. Ugh. Anyway, 3.30 a.m., the Carpathia, one of the Cunard Lines liners was the first ship to arrive in the area, firing signal rockets. Uh, the ship would only be around another six years. The Carpathia was sunk on July 17th, 1918 after being torpedoed three times by a German submarine. So many sinking boats in the decade before the Roaring Twenties. At 4.10 a.m., number two was the first lifeboat to reach the Carpathia. Safely aboard the Carpathia, Ismay wrote a message to be sent to the White Star Line's offices. Deeply regret, advise you, Titanic sank this morning, 15th after collision iceberg, resulting serious lost life, further particulars later. Can you imagine getting that message? How frustrating to get messages like that in the days before phone calls and emails, when it could be hours, sometimes days, before you're able to get more info. At 8.30 a.m., the Californian part of Britain's Leyland Line, if I didn't mention that earlier, which at approximately 5.30 a.m. had learned of the Titanic sinking, finally arrived. It searched the area for several hours, but did not find any additional survivors. At 8.50 a.m., the Carpathia, carrying 705 Titanic survivors, headed towards New York City, where it would arrive to massive crowds on April 18th. Uh, on April 16th, newspapers around the world raced to publish a headline about the disaster. They were in such a hurry to get, to their, to get their articles out that numerous newspapers ended up giving families and loved ones false hope about the sinking. The world reported zero fatalities. The Daily Mail declared no lives lost, and the Belfast Telegraph claimed no danger of loss of life. Those poor families. What an emotional roller coaster for them. American newspapers, able to take advantage of the time difference, uh, had headlines that were more accurate. The New York Times, for example, ran the headline, Titanic sinks four hours after hitting iceberg, 866 rescued by Carpathia, probably 1250 perish, Ismay safe, Mrs. Astor, maybe, noted names missing. On April 18th, the Carpathia docked at Pier 54 in New York City before a crowd of 40,000 people who gathered despite the heavy rain. And good news, that fake Herald that I said fake died earlier had actually fake lived, I fake lied. He fake made it into one of the fake lifeboats. And he fake announced the survivor's entrance to New York. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of New York City, I present to you Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon, my former employer, man responsible for the deaths of several of your loved ones. He paid the crew to keep poor women and children off of the lifeboat. Don't let him deny it. Sounds like murder to me. Damn you, Reginald! Shut your peasant mouth! I will drown you yet! Sir Cosmo, by the way, uh, would live until 1931, dying in London at the age of 68. Public suspicion that Duff Gordon had acted selfishly tainted him for the remainder of his life. A letter written by Sir Cosmo was found in 2012, and he wrote at one point, there seems to be a feeling of resentment against any Englishman being saved. The whole pleasure of having been saved is quite spoilt by the venomous attacks that made it first in the papers, or they made it first in the papers. All right, now we're going to continue this timeline, uh, diving into the long and often hilarious process of trying to recover the Titanic. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, this is weird information I did not expect. There were several serious obstacles to the recovery of the Titanic. The first was, where was it? No one knew exactly where the Titanic was. And knowing roughly where something is, uh, not knowing roughly where something is, is not ideal for a deep sea search. 
The next fairly difficult hurdle to jump was, how the hell do we get this gigantic hunk of steel off the bottom of the ocean floor, if we do find it? It weighed over 52,000 tons when it was not full of water. Despite these two gigantic obstacles, less than two years after it sunk, people were trying to find it and bring it back to the surface. In 1914, Charles Smith, U.S. architect of some renown, based primarily in Kansas City, who also lived in Denver, Colorado, proposed to attach electromagnets to a submarine to pull the wreck from the bottom. On January 34, January 31st, 1914, the New York Tribune ran the headline to raise Titanic by a huge magnet. Denver architect plans to float the liner and fit her for ocean service. Uh, the article read, to raise the Titanic, recover the bodies from its hold and again fit the ship for a sea is a scheme which Charles Smith, a Denver architect, hopes to carry out this year. His scheme is first to locate the ship. He then intends to lower a submarine carrying seven persons by means of a steel cable. The submarine is to be operated by electricity furnished through cables from the ship above. As the submarine is lowered, powerful electric magnets will be attached to its prow. Light, steep cables are to be attached to the magnets, the other end of which will be wound around steam winches on scows on the surface. When the Titanic is found, the submarine will push the magnets against the side of the wrecked ship, then signal to the men above to turn on the electric current, thus adhering the magnets to the sunken vessel. Magnets will be placed all around the ship, and when the last one is in place, the submarine will be pulled to the surface and the work of raising the vessel begun. This will be done by winding up the steel cables on the winches. When the Titanic is raised to a depth where it becomes too heavy to be supported by the flat scows, Smith intends to tow the Titanic to some point where it will rest on the bottom, but at a lesser depth. He then intends to attach larger cables to the ship, get more flat scows, and raise the boat. It's fucking nonsense! I mean, this is a cool plan in like the way, like, like the plans are cool in your daydreams, but not in a say it out loud to anyone kind of way. This architect who designed school buildings almost exclusively, uh, he didn't have two very important components in his possession that were definitely required for this plan to work. First off, he didn't have a fucking submarine capable of making it all the way down to the Titanic. Second, he didn't have magnets capable of pulling a heavy ship to the surface. And neither did anyone else. What he's talking about, none of this stuff exists. I can't believe this plan made it into the paper. It's so stupid. It reminds me of when people who are, are not in your line of work try to give you career advice when they have no idea what they're talking about. Hey, you know what you should do? You should get a couple of Netflix specials. People love watching comedy on Netflix. Oh, thanks, uncle. Why don't you just shut the fuck up? I never thought of that. I'll call my agent immediately. Hey, agent, we've overlooked something important. We should do specials for Netflix. Uh, except actually Smith's idea is even dumber than that because it involves using technology that didn't even exist. That'd be like if NASA were to say that they uh, you know, aren't going to be traveling to Jupiter anytime soon because it's too far away for our space shuttles to make it. They you know, take too long for astronauts uh, you know, to be in one of those space shuttles because they would run out of oxygen and food and they would die. And then some random accountant or somebody's like, I, hey, I got an idea. Maybe no one's thought of. Why don't you just get a spaceship? Just get a spaceship like on Star Trek. I saw one on Star Trek. You could get a Star Wars spaceship or something. They're super fast. You can warp speed. <laughs> just warp speed it to Jupiter. Thanks, guy who doesn't understand how life works. Now, shut up. The grownups are talking. Uh, nearly 40 years later, someone else had an idea, possibly even dumber than Charles Smith and his submarine magnets. In July of 1953, Risden Beasley, a British salvage company, set out on a secret mission to salvage the Titanic. The ship was reported to have dropped explosives overboard to detonate on the sea floor. The idea was to blow up the hole and then retrieve it from like the, the surface. You know, because when you blow up shit, it all, always floats up. You know, fish and metal. Uh, Beasley failed to even find the Titanic. In 1954, they tried again and failed again. 19, uh, in, the, in the 1960s, Douglas Woolley, a hosiery 
worker had another dumb plan. He proposed to find the Titanic and raise it using nylon balloons attached to her hull. He abandoned this plant after he realized it was also super dumb. During the test run, he couldn't figure out how to inflate any of the balloons once they were deep underwater. So small oversight to not know how to inflate balloons when your entire plan rests on inflating balloons. Uh, Years later, he would also claim that he somehow owned the Titanic. In 2009, a 73-year-old Wooly launched a legal challenge against RMS Titanic Incorporated, the company that would later aid in actually recovering many uh, components uh, found on, uh, you know, many... Articles on the ship. Did Woolley really have a claim to the Titanic? No, of course not. I can't believe it even went to trial. A U.S. federal judge would say no in 2020. More proposals surfaced for how to retrieve the Titanic, assuming it uh, could first be found. Uh, One suggested pumping 165,000 metric tons of molten wax or Vaseline into the ship. Not sure how that would work exactly. Uh, Another plan was to encase the ship in a a buoyant, 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 that's how you say that. I hate that word. In a buoyant jacket of ice, turning her into an iceberg that would float. My God, someone actually thought that would be possible and work. <laughs> Turn into a big, you know, a piece of ice. Uh, and then my favorite was someone suggested filling the hole with ping pong balls. Because, you know, ping pong balls float. Just probably need a couple billion of them. And then just hope that there are absolutely no holes in the hole. that would let them just continually leak out. And then bam, old ship is ready to sail again. Come on. All aboard the RMS Ping Pong. Safest ship on the seven T's. Or mine, my name is in Captain Ping Pong Ding Dong. Uh, on July 17th, 1980, a serious explorer, Jack Grimm, set off from Florida to look for the Titanic. He spent over three years and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, searching for the ship. Never find it. Uh, this same guy also looked for Noah's Ark. Spent a lot of money looking for Noah's Ark. Never found it. Also spent a lot of time and money looking for Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest. The abominable snowman in Nepal. <laughs> and the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland, and never found uh, them either. He never found anything. He was one of the best explorers in history when it came to spending a lot of money and a lot of time never finding shit. In 1984, something happened that did lead to the big ship finally being found. That year, researchers commissioned jointly by the U.S. Navy and the Woods Hole Oceanographic, there's a word that looked so easy on paper. I was like, yeah, it's fucking it's ocean and graphic. <laughs> you just put them together. Oceanographic institution uh, set out to find and map two sunken nuclear submarines lost in the same sea. They discovered that as submarines sink, parts and contents of the ship spread across a uh, large area into debris fields larger than the size of the ship, an important clue for figuring out how the Titanic debris might have scattered. And then in July of 1985, a second expedition to map these nuclear submarines is launched. And the U.S. Navy agrees to let oceanographer, I got it that time, Robert Ballard look for the Titanic in whatever time he had left over after he was done mapping the submarines. This gave him approximately 12 days to find a wreck that had been lost for 73 years. Spoiler alert, did it. Robert Dwayne Ballard was born on June 30th, 1942 in Wichita, Kansas. Ballard then grew up in San Diego, California, where he developed a fascination with the ocean. He attended the University of California in Santa Barbara, earning degrees in chemistry and geology in 1965. As a member of the Reserve Officers Training Corps, he entered the Army following graduation, serving a two-year tour before requesting a transfer to the Navy. In 1967, he was assigned to the Woods Hole Oceanographic, I think I got it, Research Institution in Massachusetts, where he became a full-time marine scientist in 1974 after completing doctoral degrees in marine geology and geophysics from the University of Rhode Island. So he thinks he's a smarty pants guy. Okay, it is pretty impressive. In the early 70s, Ballard helped develop Alvin, a three-person submersible equipped with a mechanical arm. 
From 1973 to 1975, he dove down to 9,000 feet below sea level in Alvin and in another French submersible to explore the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, an underwater mountain chain in the Atlantic Ocean. Denver's Charles Smith would have been very impressed. This guy had his submarine. Now he just needed some futuristic sci-fi super magnets. Uh, 1977 and 1979, Ballard was part of an expedition that uncovered thermal vents in the Galapagos Rift. To advance deep sea exploration, Ballard designed a series of vessels, most notably the Argo, a 16-foot submersible sled equipped with a remote-controlled camera that could transmit live images to a monitor. And on September 1st, 1985, some man-made debris, what they would later identify as the Titanic's giant boiler, one of its boilers, began to appear on Ballard's cameras eventually leading him and his team to the hull of the Titanic. Unreal, the first human contact with this ship since the night it sank over 73 years earlier. In July of 86, Ballard returned to the Titanic with Alvin, that deep diving submersible he'd worked on, and Jason, a remotely operated vehicle, to take more pictures of the wreck. The following year in 87, inspired by Ballard's find, two partners, John Joslin and George Tullock, founded RMS Titanic Incorporated, a company created to salvage and preserve the ship. And in July of 87, RMS Titanic Incorporated sent an expedition costing $6 million to dive down to the Titanic and salvage about 1,800 objects initially. Their removals from the wreck were the first to be taken, also very controversial, to salvage or not to salvage. That is a question, a big question for some. Uh, should you leave shipwrecks alone on the ocean floor for future scholars to study, or should you bring their contents to the surface where they can be put on display in museums where many people can see them? And where they also can risk ended up in the hands of private collectors who can choose to only let their friends take a look. Making this debate more complicated when it comes to the Titanic is the fact that the wreck is essentially a mass gravesite. Is salvaging the Titanic tantamount to destroying someone's headstone with a baseball bat then putting the smashed up headstone in a museum and charging people 30 bucks a piece to see it? Dr. Ballad is on the non-salvage team. In 1985, he and his crew didn't take or remove any artifacts from the site. They just photographed, just documented the ship and left behind a commemorative plaque paying uh, homage to those that perished on the Titanic. Dr. Ba Dr. Ballard shared his belief in interviews and articles that Titanic's artifacts should remain in the sea as it is a gravesite and a memorial for those who lost their lives. Obviously, the RMS Titanic Incorporated crew disagreed. Pretty amazing what they recovered. Uh, they found the bell from the crow's nest used to warn the ship that an iceberg was ahead. They found a menu uh, for the last first-class meal one of the band's violins is that menu I, you know, I read earlier. Uh, they found other menus. One of the band's violins, sheet music, a letter written by passenger Oscar Halverson to his mother the day before the ship sank, uh, found uh, folded up in his pocket, a pocket watch stuck at the time the ship sank, a bronze cherub from the Grand Staircase's upper landing, a bracelet engraved with the name of a third-class passenger, perfume bottles, and so much more. Uh, you know, In total, they ended up gathering approximately 5,500 relics. Uh, they even found uh, at their last dive, they found the fake trumpet played by Sir Cosmo's fake herald. I found my fake trumpet thing. Uh, the wreckage of the Titanic was explored again in 1995 by director James Cameron. He charted 12 total dives to the Titanic. That movie is so iconic and so tied now to the sinking. Let me share a little info about the movie with you. Filming for the movie began in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia in July of 96. Principal, you know, like filming after the, the dives, which he did use some of that footage in the movie uh, with the filming to the modern day expedition scenes aboard a Russian ship with a name. I don't have a clue how to say in September of 96, the production moved to the newly built Fox Baja studios in Rosarito, Mexico, where a full scale RMS Titanic had been constructed. 
The studio was dubious about the idea's commercial prospects, but hoping for a long-term relationship with Cameron, they gave him the green light. I love that. They didn't think it was going to work. The film ended up going way over budget and took far longer than Cameron expected to film. He would later say, I remember the last day of shooting. We'd shot for 22 hours straight. We just had to finish everything up, and the last shot was the shot of the bridge flooding with the captain on there. I was in a wetsuit with breathing gear, and I had hockey guards on my shins in case when the glass broke, it came in, and I was just thinking, okay, I've been up for 36 hours straight. I'm 20 feet underwater. They're about to blow all this glass. This room is going to implode. And it's like, Lord, take me now. This would really be a good time because we're over budget. It's a chick flick where everybody dies at the end and I don't have time to finish the movie. But finish the movie, he would. On December 19th, 1997, Titanic, the Hollywood romance directed by James Cameron is released in theaters. A huge success, if you don't know. Uh, this blockbuster won Academy Awards for Best Picture and Best Director and grossed more than $1.8 billion against a budget of $200 million. Make, it was the first film to ever crack the billion-dollar mark at the box office, and it remained the highest-grossing film in history until Cameron, uh, another one of his films, broke that record in 2010, Avatar. James Cameron, guessing his bank account, pretty healthy. His estimated net worth is $700 million, if you're curious. And there are actually two other film directors thought to be worth more than him. Want to guess who they are? One is Steven Spielberg, $3.7 billion estimated net worth, and he's not even close to first place. That position belongs to George Lucas, sitting on a fat stack of Star Wars money with an estimated net worth of $5.4 billion. Sorry, I know that doesn't have shit to do with the Titanic. I just find details like that fascinating. Uh, back to Cameron. In an interview with NPR, Cameron revealed he was so dedicated to capturing the feel of the original vessel that he ended up taking so many trips, lengthy trips to the bottom of the ocean, exploring the wreckage, he ended up spending more time on the ship than any of the actual passengers had. Pretty amazing. Uh, and in honor of Cameron's dedication to the film, I'd like to dust off my, my air banjo and, uh, and, and debut a previously unreleased air banjo solo uh, that I wrote to accompany the movie's theme song, Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. Tink, plank, plank, bank. Pink, pink. Dink, dong, dink, dong, dink. Dink, dong, dink, dong, dink, dong, dink. Dink, 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 God, how much better would that song have been if it would have included my definitely in key air banjo skills for the entire duration of that song mixed at a level three times louder than her voice. It would have been the first song to sell over a billion copies. Easy. Hail Nimrod. God, wait until I'm done with this episode, Lucifina. I know you're worked up right now. Okay, now let's jump into the future now that I've lost 75% of listeners. Let's jump into the future before jumping out of this timeline, diving into some conspiracies. Uh, by 2030, scientists now predict that the wreckage of the Titanic may very well disappear entirely due to a bacteria eaten away at it, uh, discovered in 2010. You know what? Before I move on, after that last song, I, I, I do have to push this button. It's so big. Yeah, that's just the tip. 
DJ Iceberg. You just heard Dan Cummins remixing with the Air Banjos, Celine Dion's classic on Titanic FM. The new hits and best classic. Oh, you get it. Sorry, I just had to get that out of my head before I moved on. Uh, scientists named this new bacteria eaten away at the Titanic's wreckage, uh, Holomonas titanicae. And this bacteria, I got to say, for me, seals the argument over whether to salvage the ship or not to salvage it. To not salvage it means it's probably just going to entirely disappear. And it's too historically important, I think, to risk letting that happen. Uh, letting that happen. Now let's jump out of this timeline and jump right into some crazy conspiracies. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Sorry if my uh, mush mouth is uh, more out of control than normal today. I don't know what it is with allergies. It's like I keep waiting for my allergies to just go away. And <laughs> I, if I take a decongestant allergy pill every single day, 24 hours, then I'm fine. But I, I, I miss one day. I didn't take one today. But I took an allergy pill. I just ran out of those. And I'm like, oh, let's take a normal one. And immediately my head fills up with just uh, like my sinus just gets like pressure and stuff from fucking pollen. Who invented pollen? Huh? Who invented trees and grass? Let's get rid of them. Get rid of them. No more dust. No more plants. And then I'll be fine. Just leave it a nice, clean, concrete, linoleum planet. Okay. I know I just said we were going to jump right into conspiracies, but I'm kind of a liar. Uh, starting off with something that's less of a conspiracy theory, more of an eerie coincidence, but it is brought up by conspiracists, so it feels important to, to throw it in here. Futility, a novella written by American author Morgan Robertson, was published in 1898, 14 years before the Titanic set sail. And what was it about? The sinking of a fictional ship called, dun, 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 the Titan. And that's just where the strange similarities start. The Titanic was, as we've, as we've learned, uh, when it debuted in two 1912, the world's largest luxury liner at 882 feet long, displacing 53,000 tons, once described as being unsinkable. The Titan was the largest craft afloat in the fictional world it was written for, called the greatest of the works of men, 800 feet long, displacing 75,000 tons, also described as unsinkable. The Titanic carried only 20 lifeboats, less than half the number required for her passenger capacity of 3,000. The Titan carried as few as the law allowed, 24 lifeboats, less than half needed for her 3,000 capacity. Moving too fast for sea conditions at 23 knots, the Titanic struck an iceberg on the night of April 14th, 1912 in the North Atlantic, 400 miles away from Terra Nova, a park on the east coast of Newfoundland. Also on an April night in the North Atlantic, 400 miles from Newfoundland, the Titan hit an iceberg while driving at 25 knots. Like the Titanic, the Titan also sank with more than half of her 2,500 passengers drowning, their voices raised in agonized screams. How eerily similar is all of that? This is the kind of thing a certain type of conspiratorial mind will see and think, there are no coincidences. Time to walk down to my basement, head to my wall map, grab some yarn, and connect these dots. Hiding in plain sight. I see you, Illuminati. Uh, there were, however, some differences between the fictional Titan and the Titanic. The Titan did not strike an iceberg on a clear night as the Titanic did, but instead drove headlong onto an ice shelf, rose up and then fell on her side. Uh, the Titanic hit an iceberg in perfect sailing conditions. The night the Titan sank, it was foggy. 705 people aboard the Titanic were saved. Only 13 of those aboard the Titan survived. The Titanic sank on her maiden voyage to the U.S. while the Titan made several trips and was traveling in the opposite direction. But still, a lot of similarities. So many so that the author was accused of being a psychic of sorts. 
Morgan Robertson explained that the uncanny similarities were just due to him knowing how transatlantic ocean liner travel worked, saying, I know what I'm writing about. That's all. Or you're a devil psychic, Mr. Robertson, if that is your real name. Now on to a real conspiracy theory. Several millionaires died aboard the Titanic. Noted men on the lost Titanic announced a New York Times headline, Colonel Jacob Astor with his wife, Isidore Strauss, and wife, and Benjamin Guggenheim aboard. Obituaries followed for Astor, the New York builder of hotels and skyscrapers, inventor of nonsense and writer of horseshit, uh, Strauss, banker and owner of Macy's department store, Guggenheim, builder of mining machinery, uh, also kind of really actually the son, one of seven sons of someone who, who built a fortune. One man escaped this fate, J.P. Lizard Person motherfucking Morgan, high priest of the New World Order. How? Some maintain that American millionaire banker J.P. Morgan planned the Titanic disaster to kill off rival millionaires. Uh, the, the entire theory hinges on the fact that Morgan had originally planned to sail on the Titanic, but changed his mind shortly before it left. J. Paramount Morgan had thought earlier in the year to return to America on the ill-fated Titanic. The Washington Post reported on April 19th, a couple days after the sinking. Then Mr. Morgan decided to lengthen his stay abroad. Why would he do that? Obviously to kill rich guy rivals. Rivals who are not actually rivals. Since he made his money in industrial consolidation, spearheading the formation of several massive multinational corporations like U.S. Steel, International Harvester, General Electric, he also, when the Titanic sank, had a controlling interest in AT&T, Western Union, 24 different railroads. Also, he was days away from turning 74 the day the Titanic sank and had made more money than God. And, and if you took all the millionaires who died on the Titanic and lumped them up into one person, that person would still have a hard time getting a fucking lunch meeting with J.P. Morgan. But facts like those bum conspiracy theorists out. People whose brains don't like to work that hard who don't like to deal in logic and nuance, so forget everything I just said and just think about how one rich guy needed to kill other rich guys to get more rich Illuminati. So why did he really not go on the Titanic? Well, it's a pretty well-documented reason, actually. He was busy trying to get his uh, vast art collection in England and France shipped by sea to New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. And in late March of 1912, he hit a setback. A U.S. Customs Office art specialist sent to London to inspect the shipments unexpectedly left early for the States, Morgan stopped the shipments, asked the art dealer, supervised them to meet him in France in mid-April, and then sent a telegram to the White Star Line's president with his regrets. He wasn't going to leave without his expensive art. Even if J.P. Morgan had wanted to kill his rivals on the Titanic, how the fuck would he cause it to hit an iceberg? It's not like a bomb took it down. This theory offers no explanation for that, so he'd have to be clairvoyant on top of being an evil, shitty dude. This theory also claims Morgan wanted to kill his rivals because they opposed the creation of the Federal Reserve even though Astor and Guggenheim did not appear to have taken a position on the reserve at all, and Strauss actually supported it. Alternative versions of this theory claim that uh, the Rothschild banking family, or perhaps even the Jesuits, a.k.a. the Knights Templars, were the ones who arranged for Astor, Strauss, and Guggenheim to die on the Titanic. As the Washington Post notes, invoking the Rothschilds as international conspirators is a centuries-old anti-Semitic trope. The Rothschild family founded banking houses across Europe in the early 1800s, and they have been a favorite target of conspiracy theorists ever since. Exactly. It almost always comes back to people thinking some version of, hey, how can that person have so much more money than me? Can't be due to someone capitalizing on a rare and lucrative opportunity, working really hard, passing on important inside knowledge to their children to create multi-generational industry dominance, and then reaping the financial accumulation that comes with that, can it? It can't be because company owners get paid more than company workers, can it? 
It can't be because once you reach a certain level of wealth, you can take educated, calculated risks, and sometimes those risks pay off fantastically, and you can then make your money work for you and now make massive profits off chances that require far and far less risk, but still increase your wealth exponentially, can it? Fuck no. It's because that motherfucker made a deal with the devil. He learned how to harness dark magic. He probably drinks adrenochrome, just like Tom Hanks, and he probably buys kids on Wayfair.com. And he definitely is in a cult along with international bankers and the Hollywood elite. Boom. I'm not doing as well because I have integrity. Uh-huh. Uh, the stupid JP Morgan theory resurfaced recently in connection with the QAnon conspiracy. Uh, that theory detailing a supposed secret plot by the alleged deep state against Donald Trump. QAnon has embraced the conspiracy theory that the Rothschilds sunk the Titanic because they may be some of the dumbest motherfuckers to ever live. Can we please take all of the world's diehard QAnon believers and just put them on a giant boat and then take that out to the middle of the cold waters of Atlantic and sink it? All in favor, say aye. Aye, please. Let's do it yesterday. Uh, the QAnon crowd blames the Rothschilds for sinking the Titanic, controlling the world's economy, bankrolling Adolf Hitler, plotting to kill presidents Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, founding Israel, funding ISIS, inflicting financial distress on Asians, and most recently controlling the weather. How oh, fun. Uh, a little more info on the QAnon crowd before we move on. Uh, we've covered QAnon and the secret suck, but for non-space lizards, QAnon began in October 2017 with a post on the anonymous image board 4chan by Q, presumably an American individual initially, but probably uh, this Q person later became a group of people. Q claimed to have access to classified information like so many other lunatics. Uh, this, this information involved the Trump administration and its opponents in the US and uh, the United States. Uh, Q claimed to have knowledge of the deep state uh, a favorite term of conspiracists, just nonsense. Analysis by NBC News found that three people took the original Q post, expanded it across multiple media platforms to build internet followings for monetization. QAnon preceded by several similar anonymous 4chan posters such as FBI Anon, uh, HLI Anon, High Level Insider, CIA Anon, and WH Insider Anon. And then when those Anons didn't go viral, you know, try, try again. When one super dumb conspiracy doesn't take off, you launch a new one. Uh, Q has falsely accused many liberal Hollywood actors, Democratic politicians, high-ranking officials of, uh, you know, being members of some kind of international sex, you know, child sex trafficking ring. Uh, Q also claims that Donald Trump feigned collusion with the Russians to enlist Robert Mueller to join him in exposing the ring and prevent a coup by Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and George Soros. And non-believers commonly tag their social media posts with a hashtag WWG1WGA signifying their motto, where we go one, we go all. To the ship, please. To the middle of the ocean to then have it sunk. Uh, they're insane, like really insane. They're the political equivalent of flat earthers. And like flat earthers, their ranks seem to be growing. A recent Facebook internal analysis reported in August that there are millions of followers, Q followers across thousands of groups and pages. Sweet idiocracy, here we come. Uh, one last thing about the Jay Morgan uh, J.P. Morgan conspiracy. Uh, I'm not sure I believe this, but less than reputable uh, seeming sites, a lot of them state that the White Star Line that built and owned the Titanic was a British company actually uh, owned as a subsidiary of the International Mercantile Marine Company, an American holding company owned by dun, dun, da, J.P. Morgan. So what? So what? Because he owned the company that owned the White Star Line that owned the Titanic? You know, and he backed out of sailing on it. What, he clearly sunk it to kill his rivals? That is that is the weirdest logic. Uh, or he could have saved a lot of money and just had, you know, three rich dudes poisoned and not lost a lot of money by sinking his own ship. I mean, if you're willing to sink a ship to kill hundreds, I'm guessing you, you can probably figure out how to poison three people or have them shot or something. 
Building a ship to sink it sounds like the most convoluted, idiotic way to assassinate three dudes ever. First, I will spend years and millions of dollars building the world's biggest, most luxurious ship. Then I will invite my rivals and a few other thousand passengers to board it. And then I will make sure that the guy with the keys to the binocular cabinet locks them up and runs off with the key. And then, obviously, the ship will hit an iceberg. And that is how they die. It's the perfect plan. Uh, Now for another conspiracy theory. The one that holds the Titanic never sank. That the whole disaster was faked. All for insurance fraud money. And this, this one may be dumber than the last one even. Uh, this theory posits that someone switched the Titanic with another White Star Line ship, the Olympic. What is Paul Burns, vice president and curator for the Titanic Museum Attractions in Missouri and Tennessee, points out this theory just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well said, Mr. Burns. Excellent. Uh, this theory starts with the fact that the Olympic was damaged while sailing from Southampton, England to New York in uh, September 1911 and had to return to Harlan and Wolf Shipping Yard in Belfast, Belfast for repairs. The company then repaired the Olympic and it sailed to New York and back. Then it returned to Belfast for even more repairs in March 1912, a few weeks before the Titanic set sail. The theory holds that some person or people found that the Olympic was too severely damaged to be profitable. So at some point, it was switched with the Titanic to purposefully ditch the damaged ship, reap the insurance money, and gosh dang, oh my heck, kill hundreds of people in the process. A lot of holes in this theory. Such as, why not just sink the boat in the harbor where people could escape the ship and, you know, not die? Uh, but the biggest problem with this is that the Titanic's insurance money didn't come close to covering the Olympics' loss, if this were to be true. The Titanic's insurance paid out $5 million, but the Olympic cost $7.5 million to build. So that makes no sense. Two more quick conspiracies. But first, let's look into people who actually believe the two we've just covered in today's Idiots of the Internet. Gonna bounce around a bit for this one. Look at some comment section highlights. Uh, under a video called Most Believable Titanic Conspiracy Theory of All Time, <laughs> one that centers on JP Morgan sinking the ship to kill his rivals and make insurance fraud money, user Adrian Coogan posts, Titanic Olympic whatever, sank that day it did because there were three important men on board. John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, Isidore Strauss, Federal Reserve opposers, but also JP Morgan enemies. John Jacob Astor IV was the richest man in the world and also a friend of Nikola Tesla. He he funded many Tesla ideas. Morgan built a ship simply to get rid of them. As we know, the Federal Reserve was formed the very next year. By the way, there are a lot of similarities between Morgan Robertson's book, Wreck of the Titan, and what happened in real life, but you already may know that. Uh, All right, listen, Adrian. There's a lot I could pick apart in this comment, but I've already addressed most of it. So I'm going to focus on J.P. Morgan building and then sinking a giant ship, his ship, to kill someone because that person was funding the ideas of another person, Nikola Tesla, in 1912. What? Or he could have taken the far less convoluted approach of having Tesla killed. Who does that? I must stop Tesla. His ideas could destroy General Electric, and then I would be slightly less wealthy in my final wealthy years of my wealthy life. What should I do? I know. I will find out who's funding his ideas. Then it will take a few years to build a ship. Then hope they take a ride on said ship. Then make it hit an iceberg. Then really hope that no one else continues to fund his ideas. Because that would really suck to pull all of that off, then have him just find a new benefactor that I would have to start over, build a whole other ship. 
Um, I mean, we all see how dumb that is, right? I hope so. Uh, now let's hop over to another video called Did the Titanic Really Sink? Uh, this video focuses on the conspiracy that the RMS Titanic and the RMS Olympic were switched in that insurance fraud scheme. And user Daniel DeGroff comments, this is Satan's kingdom. Satan corrupt people with power and money. Boom, nailed it, Daniel. When you don't understand something and that something seems bad, always blame the devil. Tried and true. Uh, Blair Lentz posts, I started researching Titanic when I was around 10. I'm now 22, and I fully believe the Titanic sank because Titanic and Olympic had way too many differences to do that switch. Holy shit, Blair. 12 years. It took you 12 fucking years to finally come to the conclusion that the two ships look different. <laughs> yeah, they look different. They were different ships. Uh, two Google image searches could have shown you that in about 10 seconds. You Google RMS Olympic ship design in one tab. Open another tab, Google RMS Titanic ship design in that one, then compare the two pictures and then you move on with your life. I don't care that he was 10 when he started his research. Uh, one more, uh, maybe he was just, maybe I'm just interpreting that wrong and he knew at 10 already and, and he just confirmed it for 12 years. But it comes across to me like, at first I believed it was a conspiracy thing. After 12 years of research, I was like, hey, these ships look different. Uh, one more under a CTV, CTV video from 2007 titled New Theory Suggests fire led to Titanic sinking, there is, of course, some idiocy. Uh, this video describes another conspiracy theory, that a fire spontaneously lit inside one of the Titanic's enormous coal bunkers, and that it critically weakened a crucial segment of the ship's hull, allowing it to be destroyed by icebergs. Uh, this fire then caused the ship to sink, um, you know, be working with the icebergs, you know, like if the if, if the fire hadn't been there and it would have hit the icebergs, it wouldn't have sank. It's, it's been debunked many times. A lot of ships have been sunk by icebergs over the years. They're huge. And when a huge ship hits one of them, they don't just bounce off. They simply don't move enough for the ship not to bend its hull and pop off some rivets or whatnot and allow some water inside. The momentum of an enormous heavy ship hitting a massive, virtually immovable object creates more than enough force to bend steel, to tear it from its rivets. But Matt Ironets just can't comprehend scale and momentum. And posts, I believe fire sank Titanic because if you stop and think about it, how can ice sink a huge vessel? I should have tickled the Titanic. <laughs> uh, Reno Ronov responds succinctly and perfectly with, I believe you have no idea what you're talking about. The iceberg was many, many, many times bigger and heavier than the vessel. The part of it above the water was high, was as high as the Titanic, and, it's, and that's only 10% of it. I feel like Reno's first sentence could be a fitting reply to almost every comment I have ever shared in this segment. I believe you have no idea what you're talking about. Thank you, Reno. Nimrod loves you. Uh, time for those two final conspiracies now. Uh, some claim that the Titanic was cursed by a mummy. The Titanic's mummy curse is an urban legend possibly based on the priestess of Amun-Ra who lived in 1050 BCE. According to legend, after her discovery by British archaeologists in, eight, in the 1890s in Egypt, the purchaser of the mummy ran into some serious misfortune. The mummy was then reportedly donated to the British Museum, where it supposedly continued to cause mysterious problems for visitors and staff. Then the mummy was eventually purchased by journalist William Steed, who dismissed the claims of, of the curse as quirks of circumstance. Uh, the legend claims that he arranged for the mummy to be hidden under the body of his car for fear that it would not be taken aboard the Titanic because of its reputation. He reportedly revealed to other passengers the presence of the mummy the night before the accident. However, official records state that the British Museum never received the mummy. So this is all nonsense. It only had the lid of, of its sarcophagus, which is on display at the museum and known as the unlucky mummy. 
Additionally, except during war and special exhibits abroad, the coffin lid has never left the Egyptian room. Apparently, this entire theory comes from the fact that William Steed liked to tell stories. He was a journalist. He was a writer, a good one. And it's thought that he was just entertaining other guests with a tall tale about a mummy's curse. Uh, then after the ship sank, a survivor recounted Steed's story to the New York world and the media picked it up. The next month, the Washington Post ran the headline, Ghost of the Titanic, Vengeance of Hoodoo Mummy, Followed Man Who Wrote Its History. So it's just, you know, just a story. Uh, our final theory hinges on the Catholic employees of Harlan and Wolf, the Belfast company that built the Titanic, who were allegedly distressed that the ship's number, 3909 space 04, seemed to say no Pope when viewed in a mirror. And when they saw that, they're like, we have to sink this. A little bit of a fucking stretch here. Uh, it's, it's a stretch that those numbers in a mirror would say no Pope. No, they don't. I guess maybe if you like shake your head and squint your eyes and the light's bad or something. Uh, did some religious retribution sink the ship? No. The late Titanic historian Walter Lo Lord wrote that he received letters from people in Ireland saying this no Pope story beginning in the mid-50s. Yet as Burns pointed out in his 1986 book, The Night Lives On, the numbers 3909 space 04, in addition to not looking like they spell out no Pope when viewed through a mirror, also were not on the Titanic. The whole number painted on the ship was 401, same as its yard number at Harlan and Wolf. And its board of trade number was 131,428. Also, even if one of its numbers had read no Pope, there weren't any Catholic workers at Harlan and Wolf for that message to upset. England, not real big on Catholics in 1912. Northern Ireland, not real big on Catholics, you know, if it was an English company. The British company uh, had driven its Catholic employees away by the late 1800s. And according to Anne Caulfield in her book, Irish Blood, English Heart, Ulster Fry, by the 20th century, Harland and Wolf had a reputation for employing only Protestants. So that theory is total nonsense, like the rest. It was an iceberg, a real unfortunate run in with an iceberg, not helped by radio problems and no damn binoculars. Sometimes shit just happens or hits the fan or runs into an iceberg. The Titanic, what a tale. Uh, thank you to the Space Lizards for voting for this topic so many times. Uh, over on our topic voting section of the Time Suck app. I know it never won, chose this month because uh, it had gotten close so many times. Very interesting tale. From the early days of planning between Ismay and Thomas Andrews to trying to push the White Star Line ahead of its competitor, Cunard, to being built in the Harlan and Wolf shipyards to finally setting sail on what many hope would be the first of many, many journeys, decades worth, and all the profit that would bring, but it was not meant to be. The Titanic's very first voyage would be her last. She didn't live long, but what an amazing ship she was. So extravagant, so luxurious, unless you were in the third class sharing two bathtubs with hundreds of people, uh, then maybe a little bit less luxurious, you know, definitely less if you traveled in fake fourth class, fake locked in the hole, being not on by those fake sea rats. But seriously, with the Turkish baths and 10 course first class meals and mechanical camels and big bands and grand stairways, it really was something no one had seen before on the seas. Ultimately, the Titanic would become mostly a watery grave for roughly 1,500 people. After it sank, it would remain untouched and unseen by humans for over 70 years, from 1912 to 1985. And now what's left of it might be completely gone by 2030. How quickly the Titanic went from a symbol of opulence, the culmination of the American dream, a first-class ticket being what you could dream to experience if you worked hard enough and played your cards right and got a little bit lucky, to an enduring symbol of one of the biggest tragedies of all time. And yet, even during that tragedy, there were moments of bravery. Moments of inspiration. All those men who made sure that women and children got into the lifeboats first. Isidore and Ida Strauss, who wouldn't leave each other's sides, even if it meant dying together. So sad, so beautiful. 
No wonder James Cameron saw something just epic and monumental in the Titanic. It's a story that makes you believe in meat sacks and how brave and noble we can be in the face of certain death. At least those of us, not named, of course, Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. Ladies and gentlemen of the Time Suck Podcast, I present to you Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. What a dirty, heartless piece of shit. He now dwells deep inside Nimrod's butthole. Time now for today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time Suck Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, DJ Iceberg. It's so big. Yes! Yes. That's just the tip. DJ Iceberg. Right here on Titanic FM. That's not number one. I just like hitting that button. Uh, number one on April 15th, 1912 at 11.40 p.m. after receiving multiple warnings about icebergs in the area, the Titanic would slam into an iceberg on its starboard side, slicing open the hole between five of the adjacent watertight compartments. No one knows how many people died because no one knows how many people were on board to begin with, but the U.S. would put the death toll at 1,517, while the British would say 1,503. Number two, some people, including QAnon people, uh, believe that either J.P. Morgan or maybe the Rothschilds, or maybe the Knights Templars, caused the Titanic to sink to take out their competitors. And that's, uh, uh, you know, and that's just idiotic horseshit, just like the rest of the garbage that QAnon fills people's heads with. Number three, several wealthy and or influential people were aboard the Titanic. A major factor that fueled the coverage of the ship sinking was the number of wealthy and noted noteworthy individuals aboard, such as Mr. and Mrs. John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, Major Archibald Willingham Butt, President Taft's military aide, uh, J. Pruce Ismay, Managing Director of the White Star Line, William T. Steed, well-known English editor, guy who likes to talk about mummies, Isidore Strauss, wealthy New York merchant and Macy's owner, and his wife, you know, Denver millionaire Margaret Molly Brown, and many others that we didn't discuss for the sake of time. Some of them would survive, some of them would not. Life is so unpredictable. Spend your short time on this earth with the people important to you. Number four, Robert Ballard was given just 15 days to find the Titanic, and he did it. He was testing his new submarine, the Argo, as he searched for the Titanic, and in 1985, he found one of the ship's boilers, eventually leading him and his team to the hull of the Titanic. That must have felt pretty good. Number five, new info, stewardess and nurse Violet Jessup survived the Titanic, and before the Titanic, she had already survived a different shipwreck, that of the Olympic, the Titanic's sister ship, And then after the Titanic, she would survive a third shipwreck. Violet was born on October 2nd, 1887 in Argentina to Irish parents. She defied death even as a child. At a young age, she contracted tuberculosis and despite the pessimistic opinions of numerous doctors, managed to survive. After losing her dad when she was only 16, Violet moved to England with her family where she started school. At the same time, she had to take care of her younger siblings as her mother was working as a stewardess on cruise ships and spent a lot of time at sea. When her mother became sick, young Violet left school and in 1908, at age 21, started working as a stewardess for the Royal Mail Steam Packet Company. In 1910, she became an employee of White Star Line and started working on the biggest civilian vessel of that time, the Olympic. And on September 20th, 1911, the Olympic collided with the HMS Hawk, a British warship, especially designed to ram into other ships and sink them. The Olympic had its hull breached, still managed to sail into port. Violet Jessup was not harmed in that accident. Several months after the Olympic mishap, she joined the crew of the Titanic. The young stewardess boarded lifeboat 16, was later rescued by RMS Carpathia, together with many other passengers. She was 25. You'd think at this point that Violet would not push her luck with ships anymore, but she did. When World War I began, the third of the Olympic-class luxurious ocean liners was employed by the British naval authorities as a hospital ship. 
On November 13, 1915, the Britannic was renamed HMHS, His Majesty's Hospital Ship, and put under the command of Captain Charles Bartlett. The ship transported wounded soldiers from the Mediterranean back to Great Britain, and Violet Jessup worked as a nurse on the mobile hospital. The ship completed five successful voyages on this route before suffering a tragic destiny similar to that of her sister, the Titanic. November 21st, 1916, as I said earlier, the Britannic was in the Aegean Sea when she hit a mine planted by a German submarine and sunk. Violet Jessup found her way into a lifeboat again, uh, then was nearly killed again when a piece of the ship's propeller hit her in the head. She suffered a massive head injury, somehow managed to survive her third maritime disaster, and then when the war was over, she continued to work on boats for many years. She kept working for the White Star Line, and before finally retiring in 1950, she worked for more uh, two more cruise companies, the Red Star Line, and again with the Royal Mail Line. She traveled around the world twice, also had a short marriage. When she finally retired from her job as a stewardess, she settled down in Suffolk. Even though she'd managed to survive three shipwrecks, shipwrecks, her injury from the propeller still gave her trouble, gave her trouble for the rest of her life. And then she died in 1971 at the age of 84 due to heart failure. And that is it for the top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Titanic has been sunk. I mean, sucked. It's been sunk and sucked. Uh, I loved learning about it this past week. I hope you enjoyed it. Sorry again if my uh, pronunciation... It was a little softer than usual. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. The script keeper, Zach Flannery. Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans. Bit Elixir. Logan and Kate Keith running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. The Art Warlock and the Bad Magic Baroness. Takes a village. Uh, thanks to all those who've joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Hail Nimrod to you. Thank you to Liz Hernandez and her all-seeing eyes for running the very active Cult of the Curious page. Uh, private page there. And thanks to all the wonderful weirdos having fun on Discord. Thanks to the Space Scissors as well for playing Time Suck Trivia on the app. Last I checked, Sergeant Awesome in the lead of round two with 6,687 points with just a few days left. Ryan O'Neill hot on Sergeant Awesome's heels with 6,733 points. I am in 41st place currently, even though I tried my best. <sighs> New round starts three hours after this episode drops at 3 p.m. Monday, September 7th. Who will get the second coveted Cowboy Pigeon Trophy? Next week on Time Sock, we take a look at the L.A. riots of 1992. Tragic events pitted the African-American community, the Latino and Hispanic community, the Korean community, and the very white at the time LAPD community all against each other in a little urban war zone known as Los Angeles. A major outbreak of violence, looting, and arson began on April 29th, 1992 in response to the acquittal of four white L.A. police officers on all but one charge on which the jury was deadlocked, connected with a severe beating, the videotaped beating of an African-American motorist named Rodney King in March of 91. As a result of several days of rioting, dozens of people were killed, more than 2,300 were injured, and thousands arrested. Over 1,000 buildings were damaged. Total property damage was estimated to be around a billion dollars, uh, which made the riots one of the most costly and violent civil disruptions in American history. So much to the story. It was a chaotic moment in American history, one very relevant to today, in part of the city, people defended their stores on rooftops with guns while not far away. More than one person was drugged from their vehicles and nearly beaten to death by strangers only to be saved by other pastors or other strangers. I still got the ship in my head. Uh, the LA riots of 92, part of a long history of racially based riots in the US. What did we learn from them? Tune in next week as uh, I'll attempt to look at the bigger picture and see if we can figure out why history continues to repeat itself. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker 
updates. Updates? Get your time sucker updates. An anonymous mental health working meat sack sent in the following message. I love it. Hey, shrub fucker. <laughs> Regarding little Dicky Chase, you mentioned that he used meth a bunch. I work as a mid-level provider in a small community nonprofit, nonprofit psych and addiction mental medicine clinic, my God, in Arizona. I struggle often with deciding if psychosis is methamphetamine induced and then shit got crazy, or if shit got crazy, then the meth use started as a way of self-medication. Sadly, it's never a great ending, but working so closely with families all these years, I can't help but identify with the folks dealing with mentally ill family and friends. If you read this, can I get a shout out to my personal big titty, wicked sense of humor, and heartfelt Mulvisti, Mulkvisti? I don't know what that term means. Uh, Amy, she turned me on to the suck with the Albert Fish episode. She'd appreciate it. Thanks, and I appreciate you taking mental health stuff with a grain of salt in your podcast. Well, thank you, anonymous do-gooder, and thanks for dishing out some piping hot peanut butter, Amy. Showbiz. Uh, first off, good for you for doing the work that you do. Can't imagine how draining it must be at times. And, and I think the big takeaway with meth in general is just don't ever do it ever. Mentally ill or not, I'm pretty open-minded when it comes to drug use. And while I've done a, a fair amount of different drugs, never done meth. And I have friends who have, none of them talk about like, man, I wish I could do more meth. I wish I could do so much more meth. I mean, maybe kind of like as a joke, <laughs> but not really. It's just, it's just full of so many toxic chemicals cooked up in so many different ways. You never know how it's like cut up. All the ways it's cut up are bad. Richard Chase may not have been a great dude without meth, but meth certainly did not help. Such a rough drug, such a dirty drug. In addition to destroying your brain, it also is so hard on you physically. A couple of kids I went to high school with got way into meth for a couple of years. And I saw them 10, 11 years after graduation, and they looked like they'd aged legitimately 25 years. Uh, and good on you again for helping families deal with uh, heavy shit. Local sack, local Idaho sack, Nathan Cameron wrote in a very short but very cool message. He wrote, Dear Master of All Suck, I'll keep this long. Thanks to the Cult of the Curious Facebook page, I've connected with an awesome Aussie meat sack. I'd love for you to do a shout out to top shelf sack Scott Findlay. This community is so amazing for a potato lizard to talk to an Aussie sack. It's just mind-boggling. Three out of five stars. Hail Nimrod, Idaho Lizard Nathan. Uh, dude, I love that, Nate. That's awesome, man. And uh, yeah, Scott, thanks for uh, thanks for joining the, uh, the Cult of the Curious Facebook page, meeting some Idaho folk. Not always easy making international friends living in Idaho. Not the most multicultural state, especially if you don't live in Boise. Uh, I love how through the cult of the curious, you can connect with people from around the world, you know, who enjoy at least some of what you enjoy to give you a starting off point conversationally. And I think it's so important to have friends in different places. It's just uh, different countries, different points of view. It just broadens your perspective. Let's you see the world through some new lenses, which tends to increase tolerance. Maybe make you a little bit less uh, to indulge in stereotypes and nationalistic tendencies. America's great, but it's one of many great nations around the world. Hail Nimrod, fellow Idahoan. Uh, next up, we have a message from a real... <laughs> Sorry, this one kills me. Next up, we have a message from a real bitch-ass hoe who needs to get to go shit her motherfucking pants. This is all going to make sense in a second. Uh, bitch-ass hoe writes, please keep me anonymous. Hey, Dan. Sorry, this is a bit of a long email. I've been listening to Time Suck for a while now and just listened to the Killer Kids episode. I teach middle school and had quite the experience with a potential killer kid. I was picking up my classroom one day after school, found a student's planner had been left behind, started to flip through it to figure out whose it was so I could return it. I came across two pages full of a journal-like entry that described how much the student wanted to kill me. I attached, pic I attached pictures of it for you. Saw those. Yee. Uh, also, uh, I'm going to write up a transcript of what she wrote. Here goes. And this is accurate based on the pictures. 
who the fuck let this teacher teach here? And when I say teacher, that's, you know, to keep her anonymous. Who the fuck let this teacher teach here? She makes me want to fucking kill myself. Not even joking, bitch. She is such a little slut. Go kill yourself, you fucking little slut. She should go shit her fucking pants, ho. Wouldn't be surprised if she got fired, bitch ass ho. Don't know how to act. If the purge was real, she would be my target. This teacher is a bitch ass ho who needs to fuck off and go shit her motherfucking pants. That, <laughs> that little slut couldn't even find a job at a different school. She is absolute ass at teaching. She fucking wore the same pair of jeans for a fucking week, bitch. I thought last teacher was bad before I motherfucking met this teacher. She a whore and she don't know how to act. Want to murder that hoe. What the f actual fuck is her problem? She can't fucking do anything right. Why can't she just fuck off? She needs to get murdered. That little shit makes me so mad. Fucking hell, fuck you, teacher. <laughs> wow. So yeah, uh, yeah, possible future killer kid. The student got suspended for two weeks and thankfully was homeschooled after her suspension so I didn't have to ever see her again. Teachers go through so much shit and it hardly gets dealt with properly. In my case, my principal never even asked if I was okay or if I needed anything. I hope that you read this during one of your future Time Sucker updates so I can hear what you have to say about it. I know that whatever you have to say about it will make me laugh and help me deal with the emotions and negative feelings I still have because of this. Thanks for all you do. Sincerely, the bitch ass... <laughs> the bitch ass -o who needs to go shit her motherfucking pants. Uh, wow. Uh, well, first off, bitch ass -o, you need to get more motherfucking pants. I mean, come on. She has a fair point. How are you supposed to teach those kids wearing the same motherfucking bitch ass slut pants every day? And then when you get those extra pants, you need to take a motherfucking shit in them. Why? I'll, I don't I don't know. That wasn't made clear. <laughs> but seriously, glad that little brat got suspended. Uh, I hope she got in trouble at home. I doubt she probably did. Most kids, in my opinion, when they act like that, are, are not living in a household full of firm rules. And parents not afraid to call them out on their shit and punish them, right? Their parents are distracted, maybe too busy working, or just shitty parents or something. If one of my kids did some shit like that, oh my God, A, uh, I would think it was kind of funny. Because I have a fucked up sense of humor, and the pants uh, lines specifically would kill me. But then B, they would be in so much trouble, picking weeds in the yards for hours. Uh, their phone would be gone. Actually, in that instance, I think I would literally take their phone and smash it in front of them and then throw the pieces in the trash, right? You can have a new one in six months if you're not still a huge psychotic asshole. Uh, and, and shame on your emotionally dead principal for not checking in with you. I know there are some great principals out there, but like with any job, you know, some of them are shit. Hope that one kid doesn't ruin the teaching experience for you. Hope you can think about all the other kids who do not write shit like that. Kids who, uh, you know, raise their hands, want to learn. Kids who are thankful for the knowledge you give them every day. Knowledge that if they absorb it, will lead them to become better citizens than the kid who got suspended will probably become. Kids who, you know, appreciate the, the pants that you wear and don't want you to shit them. Uh, for everyone listening, please support teachers. Don't, don't let them get away with bullshit if you have a bad one, of course. But in general, please support that profession. They're molding our future politicians, police officers, scientists, doctors, business and community leaders. They shape the future and I don't want to retire someday in some kind of fucked up Thunderdome, Mad Max type of dystopian nightmare because no one gives them any support. Hope that made you feel better. Hope it did bring a smile to your face. Uh, now for a Cummins Law message. These, as you know, just kill me. <laughs> this comes from SuperSack Ken Blass, I'm guessing. B-L-A-S-S, Blass, Ken Blass, uh, who writes... Third time's the charm. Hey, Suckenstein. Suck Rogers. Nice. I like that one. Mustachioed guardian of Nimrod's temple of knowledge. Okay. Okay. Killing it. Uh, Sir Dan Cummins, I can't totally blame you for this one. So let's start with the fact that it's never a good idea to pump gas and listen to Time Suck with your car door open and said podcast blaring on your radio. Sure, there were no cars at the time. 
Car pulls up on the other side of me. I'm oblivious, listening to the Richard Chase episode. And you get to the part where he goes to the psychiatrist for his ED problems and proceeds to get yelled at by the psychiatrist that he's a limp dick mama's boy and should man up. I finish pumping, go to get in the car, and the guy next to me is giving me a, if looks could kill, you would be dead, you asshole look. Perhaps it hit a raw nerve, or maybe he's just a tight ass. Looks don't kill, only in a scared to death story. I'm also a creeper. So I give the guy a shrug and smirk. Chikatilo is in my head going, what's this big deal? And drive off realizing there is something satisfying and very funny about Cummins, Cummins Law situations. Keep up the good work with my two favorite diversions for the week. Suck hard, boss man of the cult of the curious. Hail Nimrod, good boy Bojangles. What's up, Lucifina? Loyal meat sack, Ken Bloss. P.S. The title comes from the fact it's my third Cummins Law encounter. Well, thank you, Ken. And I hope, sorry if I fucked up your name. You know I'm bad at names. You get it. Uh, this made me laugh so hard. I often think as I record these episodes, what, what is someone going to think if they hear like this part of the episode, you know, out of context? How many times will that guy reflect on that moment? Like, how will he make sense of it? What the fuck what did he think that you were listening to? Ah, so many questions that will never be answered for him. Uh, thank you for sharing this and making me laugh so hard. One more. I, I got a much needed update about an area of Idaho near where I grew up that I've been through many times that I clearly don't know enough about. From kick-ass sucker, Destiny, who writes, Dear Master Sucker, I just listened to the Walt Disney suck and found myself eagerly awaiting your description of his wife, Lillian. As a resident of the great state of Idaho, like yourself, I was optimistic you'd throw in the interesting Idaho, Idaho trivia about her hometown. I was especially excited because I graduated from that very same fancy high school and called the surrounding dire straits my hometown just as Lillian once did. And as a former Lapway resident, I have a few things to say. First, go fuck yourself. Second, <laughs> fair. Secondly, I get it. Uh, the Nez Perce reservation is all my people. The Nimipu have left after the Nez Perce War of 1877 against the U.S. government. And I'm hesitating on Perce because I heard it as Pierce sometimes growing up. But uh, thank you for putting the phonetic guide in there of Perce. Um, so yeah, I'll say that again. The Nez Perce Reservation is all my people. The Nimipu have left after the Nez Perce War of 1877 against the U.S. government, or had left. The war itself was an incredibly interesting topic of discussion. From the Battle of Big Hole in Montana, where women and children were slaughtered indiscriminately from the men to the thousand-mile pursuit of our chiefs led by U.S. Army generals that ended uh, just short of the Canadian border, to Chief Joseph's famous quote, from where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. Even more interesting and relevant, though, is the topic of the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, within the U.S. Department of the Interior, created by the War Department. From its early, concerted efforts to remove and relocate indigenous people to the surprisingly recent and sinister history of the euphemistic boarding schools, the BIA has deep implications in extrapolating the pervasive issues afflicting reservation towns like my fairly described Lapway, even to this day, as the managers of all tribal land. So while, I'm a per while I am a person who vehemently believes that personal choice is the primary force guiding our lives, whether for the better or worse, rough reservation towns like Lapway have a slightly more complicated history than most rundown and poverty-ridden communities you might drive your kids through as a life lesson. It's my hope that this brief history is part of your conversation with Kyler Monroe next time you're passing through Lapway at the very least. I hope you know I don't actually take any offense by your comments because they're quite accurate. Lapway is rough, and I only spent the time to write this because I know you, of anyone, might appreciate this small snippet of background for the tiny town in your commute, and may even go so far to learn a bit more about my people, the Nimipu, who have a rich and proud history in the region. And even if you end up reading, oh, and if you even end up reading this, and it by some chance makes a future Time Sucker update, I would be remiss without asking, 
Uh, would you mind giving my husband, Nick, a shout out? We met at the aforementioned Lapway High School nearly 10 years ago, and he's been a devout sucker since the early episodes. Thank you so much. Wishing you all the best. Hail Nimrod and praise Bojangles Destiny. Well, Destiny, first off, clearly the Lapway High education is fucking stronger than Salmon River High education I received. Because I have never confidently, I don't think, thrown remiss uh, into a sense and felt confident I could pull it off. Uh, thank you for that extra knowledge. And, and thank you, Nick. Look at you two high school sweethearts. And yes, I will pass along this information to Kyler Monroe. Uh, I feel like Kyler probably already knows. I'm not sure why or even exactly when it started, but he has been very into American Indian history lately and very angry uh, about the many injustices carried out against various tribes, basically all the tribes by the U.S. government over the years. Um, also, as far as kind of extra information about, you know, your people, I do often stop at Tolo Lake on my way home, cutting across Camas Prairie, former Nez Perce gathering place, place used for gathering food such as the Camas Root, and uh, for meetings with neighboring bands and for connecting people living near the Snake River to people living near the Salmon. And also just uh, saw the uh, Nez Perce uh, petroglyphs that are near the Pittsburgh Landing just a few weeks ago again. Uh, so thanks for throwing this inf extra information my way, Destiny. I really do appreciate it. I do love learning more about your people, uh, especially, you know, after growing up so near them. I will look at Lapway with new eyes going forward. And hail Nimrod, everyone. Thank you for your messages. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. That's all for this week, Meat Sacks. Thanks for continuing to rate and review Time Suck. I appreciate it. We all do here. Uh, don't sink in the Atlantic this week. And also, keep on sucking. It's so big. Yeah, that's just the tip. DJ Iceberg. Iceberg. <laughs> Fuck yeah, bro. What makes a carnival cruise fun? That's up to you. Maybe it's a ride on boat, a roller coaster at sea, or a deep tissue massage at the spa, Creole-inspired cuisine at Emerald's Bistro to laid-back bites at Guy's Burger Joint, excursions that take you from jungle adventures to beach days at Mahogany Bay, and sunsets from the top deck. Long story short, no one does fun like carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama.